0: 2045. Everyone's looking for a way to escape. They called our generation the Missing Millions.
1: Missing not because we went anywhere. There's nowhere left to go except the Oasis. Players, are you ready? This is now playing's review of Ready Player One. This is nothing less than a war for control of the future. Hosted by your favorite Gunter Clan, Arnie. You have to excuse him. She just does nerf pretty girls. Justin. If anyone's going to win this competition, it's me. And Stuart.
2: Like many of you, I only came here to escape, but I found something much bigger than just myself.
1: This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers, mild language, and copious 80s references. Batman. Lex loser. That's fine. <laughs> Kong. This is amazing. Listener discretion is advised. <laughs> Baby. Drive past your house, and if the lights are all
3: down. I'll see you. Now. Today we're discussing Ready Player One, starring Ty Sheridan, Olivia Cook, Ben Mendelson, TJ Miller, Simon Pegg, Mark Rylance, directed by Steven Spielberg. This is the now-playing co-host who never licks. I just always bite right to the chocolatey center. Remember that commercial with the owl? This is Arnie. (laughs) Hey, you forgot about Duke Nukem.
2: Lara Croft is in this. Chun-Li, the guys from Halo. There's a lot of video game players. Ready Player One. And Stuart.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's so many references. I'm just Justin today.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. There are a lot of references. Walking out of Ready Player One, I just thought, This movie is thinking you Roger Rabbit, we're gonna do more. Everybody's in here except Disney characters.
2: Yeah, that was the one comparative I had. It was quite a significant thing. People don't, I don't know, do they remember who framed Roger Rabbit? But to be able to get Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse on the same screen at the same time was the coup of the 80s for Robert Zemeckis. And I suppose there's some of that going on here as well. We're covering video games, so we are covering Ready Player One, but this is not based on a video game. It's inspired by gamer culture.
0: It's actually based on a book by Ernest Klein. You guys know it? I'm aware of it. I did not read it. But I am aware of Ernest Klein. He kind of made a name for himself when he wrote a love letter to Star Wars fans years ago called Fanboys. I've never seen Fanboys
3: because... It felt derivative and not really fun. I sent Brock out. If you guys remember the early reviews of Now Playing, I told Brock, you go watch Fanboys, review it for Now Playing, and let me know if I should see it. His review let me know I never need to see Fanboys. As for Ready Player One, having wanted to be a game developer for a long time, when that book came out, everybody was telling me, Arnie, you've got to read this book, you're going to love this book. So I bought the book. And it has sat on my bookshelf ever since. I've read other gaming books and things, but I never got to this one. And then Loot Crate just sent me a copy. I think that's part of the marketing strategy of this movie is they gave Loot Crate a a hundred thousand copies of ready player one so every loot crate subscriber and i'm talking the lowest level of loot crate I'm not getting any of those deluxe packages with the socks I'm saying just the cheap ass loot crate sent me a free book <laughs>
2: yeah and I thank them for it because it allowed me to borrow it from you and read it I knew the name because when I first discovered the hunger game novels it was put in that same camp it was y a dystopian everybody was facing an uncertain futuristic world and young kids were taking bows and arrows or what have you and saving them and hunger games was the only series that i read but i thought of it in the same way it made sense that they were going to make a movie out of it i didn't realize that someone with the cloud of spielberg would be attracted to doing that kind of thing but every now and then spielberg does want to be a kid again right every now and then he decides he's going to go back and try to recapture what he was doing in the 80s i, I think
3: that epitomizes his career up until Schindler's List was all about
0: reclaiming lost youth. We reviewed Hook and discussed that. I think for all the same reasons Stewart just kind of listed, this movie really, or this book wasn't really something that was on my radar to the point where I felt it was going to draw me in, because it did feel YA, and it just wasn't something that was hitting me. So the addition of Spielberg, when I heard that he was the one making this movie, I was like, oh, okay, that seems like something that would be of interest to me. And not just because it's Spielberg himself, but the fact that the material is covering such an iconic type of video game and love letter to references in the 80s and all that stuff, I felt like, okay, well, maybe this is Spielberg returning back to fashion. So that's what kind of drew me in initially to wanting to see this movie.
2: Yeah, I mean, he is the Willy Wonka of 80s entertainment. So that's what this story reminds everyone of. They don't even hide that fact. When you see the trailers, they play that song from the Gene Wilder movie. It's a Willy Wonka adventure. But is it a good story? I probably would have never read it if it weren't for the fact that yeah, this movie was coming out. We were covering it. Originally, I think I did promise you all the Books and Nachos about all my thoughts on that. And no, I'm not going to do that. I'll distill that to just a few thoughts because it's pretty uniform. I've soured on this novel uh, about halfway through. It was kind of fun to go back and see all the references, but you say this guy made a film called Fanboys? That's what this book felt like. It was nothing but someone who just lived in a regressive state in which everything from the 80s was great. He literally wrote the line, Explorers is the greatest kids movie of all time. And I (laughs) threw the book across the room. Because Arnie, you and I went to see Explorers opening weekend and we hated it.
3: We were 10. We walked to the mall, which was, you know, a half an hour walk for us. Not very far. And... I remember walking home the entire way basically doing a kitty now playing of how much that movie sucked. We loved it up until the alien showed up. And I still to this day remember my WTF reaction when the movie changed from what was to a 10-year-old dark sci-fi into the most goofy, crazy, random... ...movie that I just hated. So yes, the greatest kids movie of all time. I didn't like it when I was a kid. And there's plenty of other kids movies I'd rank above it. We've reviewed here. Goonies, anyone? I honestly feel bad when I think about the way our generation... ...keeps trying
2: to tell younger people how great the 80s were. I mean, I don't know if you guys go through that. But I was there. And yeah, it was pretty good if you were a child... ...with a middle class income. You had a lot of great toys... There was a lot of entertainment available to you. Maybe that's your style, but to scream that the pinnacle of civilization was Yar's revenge. I mean, this, this book, like, it just really, it's a wank job. I mean, I really just felt like he was whacking off to a and d module. It was ridiculous. <laughs>
0: Peddling in nostalgia is kind of a dangerous minefield. Eventually, you're going to bump up to something, you know, like walk like an Egyptian where it's just like, ooh, there's a split in the pop culture divide right there. (laughs) Or we built this city on rock and roll. Best song of all time or worst? (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think anyone that lives through something is going to have some kinds of nostalgic feeling that someone that didn't live through that is not going to have. So that's going to be a divide. I think anyone that is... Our age reading that book is going to experience it differently than a young adult picking it up that never knew the 80s. That was what their parents lived through. But what really irritated me and what I deeply prayed Spielberg would change about the novel was that it built up to nothing more than to say that the hero of this story was great because he knew the most trivia. Because he knew all the episodes of Family Ties, because he could recreate a scene from Ferris Bueller with every detail, that made him the greatest. (laughs) And I just thought, don't you know what that makes you? That doesn't make you cool, Brewster. You're just a fanboy. And it was hard for me to celebrate the idea that because someone loves something so much, it made them the greatest.
3: Hey, you know, you're on Now Playing. We kind of live and die by our movie trivia and how much we know. And
2: <laughs> I would never want to say I'm the greatest because I remember some stupid 80s horror movie. I think it's a badge of shame I can't list all of the Bill of Rights, but I can somehow know all the Friday the 13th movies.
3: (laughs) Including which one has the burrito. But I will just say for the listeners, while Justin and I haven't read this... I've talked to several other people. Yours does appear to be not a complete minority opinion, but there are people who love, love, love this book. A lot of people love this book who would not agree with throwing it across the room. They revel in this book, including younger people. I personally find it interesting that it appears this movie, which takes place in 2045, says absolutely no pop culture was built after the 20th century, with the exception of Halo, but... People love this book. There's a reason it was adapted into a movie. There was a reason Spielberg got it. And you asked about anticipation. The trailers didn't do much for me. I liked seeing Freddy Krueger in one of them. I just like seeing Freddy Krueger. This is his first cinematic appearance since the reboot. I mean, who would have thought that we'd go this long with no Freddy? But I wouldn't have been pulled to theaters based on the trailers I saw. But because we were reviewing it, I had hope. This was Spielberg, and when it comes to fun pop culture movies, I'm not talking about Amistad and all that other stuff, I really feel he's only shit the bed twice. The Lost World and Hook, both of which we've reviewed. Everything else he's done that's mainstream, box office blockbuster, ranges from pretty good to great. I mean... I don't remember the War of the Worlds podcast going that way. Okay, shit the bed three times. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think you liked Minority Report either. I like Minority Report. I just don't love Minority Report. I think it's fine. That's the thing is I went in thinking, at worst, this will be fine. And it feels like we have done so many weekend of release movies that people have amnesia about. Does anybody remember that we reviewed Death Wish? Does anyone in the United States remember Pacific Rim came out last week? (laughs)
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, that is the problem. I think it's why we've never been attracted to doing a full every week a new movie, because let's face it, most years don't produce a classic a week. Not that we cover only classics, but we do cover classic franchises. And, you know, whether they ebb or flow, we are talking about something that has more staying power in pop culture than, yeah, whatever is getting hyped this week at the multiplex. But this is what's being hyped this week at the Multiplex, and they're trading a lot on Spielberg's name. And the fact that the trailer advertised any character you ever heard of, at least owned by Warner Brothers, is going to make a cameo in this
0: film. I saw some things floating around on the web before this movie premiered. that There was an article about Disney won't allow Star Wars in Spielberg's new movie. After seeing this, was there any Star Wars sprinkled in here? Oh, absolutely. But it was weird. It was Watto. I saw Watto in
3: (laughs) one of the scenes. And then I think I saw Zuckus in the background. And then they name dropped the Millennium Falcon. All right.
2: Yeah. the the wizard calls him Padawan when he first wins the first
3: key. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But I was really shocked of all the characters you're going to bring in. You're going to bring in Watto. But there was a Toydarian floating around the very first time they enter the Oasis.
0: (laughs) What does that say about that player that that's their avatar? that mind tricks don't work on them. Only Bitcoin? I guess everything's about coins there. What does
3: it say about Disney that they didn't care that that one got into the film? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently a lot of the animators were putting Easter eggs in there. Spielberg had one rule. He was not going to reference any of his own stuff. And Ernest Klein was there on the set working with Spielberg. From what you tell me, Stuart, probably coming in his pants the entire time about that fact. Yep. But... He's trying to get Spielberg to bring in Spielberg references, and I read some interviews with Spielberg, and he said, I didn't have a lock on the 80s. There were a lot of great films on the 80s. He did agree to the DeLorean because he felt like that was more a uh, Zemeckis movie than his own movie. He executive produced it so he'd allow the Back to the Future stuff but the animators were trying to fit Easter eggs everywhere and Spielberg's like, you know, I watched these scenes 30 to 40 times in the editing bay. I catch it. There was a book called Spielberg's Ark they had to remove and there was a Jaws poster they had to remove that these guys were just putting in there. I did spot some gremlins but that was his thing as he was not going to put in E.T., Indiana Jones, Close Encounters. I think he put in Jurassic Park, but he said he wouldn't.
2: Yeah, they're all there in little ways. There's a button the character wears that's Simon. That came from Close Encounters. There's a Raiders of the Lost Ark poster on a wall. It is all there. And I do think that this is Spielberg commentating. I mean, I actually think maybe the reason why he chose this material, keep in mind, Spielberg gets offered everything. Every movie that is made will first go
3: to his desk. Our Goonies 2 sequel that we made in the 80s. We sent it to Spielberg. We're like, do you want to do it? No? Okay, Stuart, you direct.
2: Yeah, right. I was
3: second in
2: line for that one. So I think it has to have something that catches his imagination. Every movie, whether it turns out good or not, it there was something about it that spoke to Spielberg at that time. And I think Spielberg is ready to talk To a new generation who didn't grow up watching his movies, but know his influence, and to really talk to his younger self
3: about the world ahead.
0: I don't think the movie suffers by not having an E.T. front and center. So I think Spielberg's impetus to not want to fillet himself on screen is is a good one. Trading on Spielberg's name, plus nostalgia has worked,
3: I... Went. I thought I went opening night. I bought tickets for opening night, and then I found out opening night was Wednesday, not Thursday, so I had to actually return my tickets because we were recording a Godfather podcast that night, so I went Thursday night at 7pm, IMAX 3D, theater probably two-thirds full. Stuart, you went with me? Yeah,
2: yep. seemed packed, and then I did, went back the second night to a rundown theater, and it wasn't packed, so I don't have a good sense about whether this was going to be a hit, but I'm happy to see that people are turning out for a movie that it doesn't have a two or a three behind it. This is not a sequel, but it's drawing in the same numbers as people that are seeing a Marvel or DC film.
3: And it's not an original property, let it be said. It's still based on a book, I mean.
2: And trades in all kinds of pop culture nostalgia.
3: I went back the second day, it was Friday, I went to a 3pm showing, because of my day, I could only see IMAX 3D, even though I would have much preferred non-IMAX 2D for a second showing, so I was back in that same theater the next day, I completely forgot it was Good Friday, great Catholic I am, so (laughs) I didn't realize school was out or anything, it was again a packed theater, not... Thursday night packed, but
0: I'd still say nearly two thirds full. I did end up going opening night, not realizing that it was a Wednesday, but when I went to get my tickets, I was like, oh, wow, we can go Wednesday. That's great. A little bit earlier. And I was surprised by how full our screening was. It was just a regular 2D digital screening, which, you know, is my preferred way of going. I had every intention of going back Friday night, but for whatever reason, they're pushing this movie in 3D. Like the latest 2D digital showing on Friday evening was at 6. Everything else was in IMAX 3D and 3D Real Max.
3: Again, like I said with Pacific Rim last week, I'm finding it strange. I'm enjoying the commentary we're able to do on now playing of following the trends in cinema. The way a year ago, IMAX said, no 3D. And now two weeks in a row, I have found it really hard to find 2D showings of those movies. So yeah, There were four showings across nine screens that were 2D. Otherwise, it was 3D or IMAX 3D.
2: Well, Spielberg's in that club where he can command how it's going to go. You know, Nolan can say, I'm putting it out in 70 millimeter and people are going to have to find a way to show it that way. And Spielberg can say, IMAX, I'm doing 3D and you're going to do it that way. I mean, he commands the business so that, yeah, people are going to see it the way that he wants them to see it. He wanted us to see it in 3D. But yeah, there are a few screenings if you're like Justin that you get headaches if you watch
3: 3D. Yeah, I don't know if the human segments of this movie were filmed in 3D or not, but so much of it takes place in a virtual world. And I've long stated the best movies to see in 3D are animated ones, Pixar and Disney stuff, because it's all in a 3D modeled computer. And 75% of this movie is in this Tron world that's computer generated too, where things don't look photorealistic by design. And I don't know that it had great 3D, but there were a couple moments where I really appreciated it.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, Spielberg's done it before. It's not his first time in the format. Ten Ten, I think I enjoyed even more than the quality of the movie because it was 3D at a time when 3D was novel. I think the problem for me is, at this point, I've seen so much 3D that the gimmickry of it is over. And I wouldn't say it's better or worse than much of the 3D you experience anytime you go in that format.
0: Yeah, and you know, even just seeing it in 2D, you could tell that there were parts that would have been really immersive in 3D, but... Overall, this movie is just so dense with imagery that I don't think I could have handled the whole thing in 3D.
3: I did pay attention on the second showing. I don't think any of this was filmed with IMAX cameras. And we know Spielberg still likes to film on film and edit the old style way. So there was nothing that seemed to change aspect ratio for the larger format. It was just a bigger screen. And because he likes to film on film, that makes me think this was filmed in 2D as well.
2: Yeah, I agree with that And, you know, it's just all about getting in with the characters, right? They're going to strap on visors We strap on visors to see them To have us become self-aware of what we're doing When we do that is part of the experience of this movie Spielberg's Ready Player One is a cautionary tale That's the biggest difference, I would say, from book to film As this movie is here to warn us of something about what we're doing Whereas the book indulged without contemplation But let's get into it. Let's contemplate it all. Arnie, give him a plot. We'll
3: get into Ready Player One. I challenge our listeners... How many references to 80s movies will I make? (laughs) Let the counter begin. Once Upon a Time in America. Was
2: that a reference?
3: Yeah. That that movie came out in 1984. Yeah. Okay. Once Upon a Time in America, the year 2045 in Columbus, Ohio, to be specific, an innocent man, Wade Watts, played by Ty Sheridan. Oh, boy. His parents are dead, so he lives with his aunt and uncle who are without a clue. (laughs) Oh,
2: my God. And these aren't even the like properties people get nostalgic for. Without a clue, really?
3: <laughs> You're holding
2: on to without a clue.
3: Wade is like most people of his age who have distant voices still lives. Wow. <laughs> <God. Jeez. laughs> you haven't even seen that movie.
2: <laughs> You're making mural
3: street bands
2: feel like there's something here for
3: them. <laughs> So as an entire generation, they are checking out. The youth figured out how to beat the high cost of living by hanging out in a virtual reality world called the Oasis, where it seems like old times. (sighs) Mostly the 80s, and Wade is trading places with his virtual avatar, Parzival. In the Oasis, Wade has a new life as an adventurer, and he has a small circle of friends, including H, whose avatar is an orc, and Sho and Daito, Also, two great gamers. The four are called Gunters, gamers who are in hot pursuit to complete Anorak's Quest, a game launched by Oasis creator and real genius James Halliday, played by Mark Rylance.
2: Had to get that one in.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That
0: one was just sitting there.
3: It was. When Halliday died, the game began, and the first player to find victory will inherit ownership of the Oasis. The game was tougher than leather, leading most players to surrender. But some gunters continue playing for keeps with high hopes but little success. <laughs> We're just shaking his it's, head.
2: It's like being slapped. It's just like, remember that and that. And that is the, is the dark side of nostalgia. <laughs> Pulling things out you don't want to come back.
0: Stewart's got Nell Carter in the mind. Give me a break coming.
2: Yeah, do they have modern problems?
3: (laughs) As there are three quests to beat and no one has even completed the first, but to be rich and famous, the Gunters think Anorak's quest is worth winning. Every man, woman, and child would like to win, including Ben Mendelsohn's character, Nolan Sorrento, chairman of the board. All right, I pulled a 1999 film out there. (laughs) Is that a Carrot Top movie? chairman Uh, of the
0: board is yeah
2: it it was his only
3: it's the only carrot top movie thankfully
0: (laughs) yeah not a carrot top movie the carrot top (laughs) movie chairman of the board for
3: innovative online industries or ioi the company that makes most of the vr gear to satisfy his wall street investors sorrento needs to win the game and own the oasis so he has a monster squad of gamers called sixers slave workers forced to live in a cage and play to pay off debts Due to his wealth, Sorrento is above the law, and his staff of ruthless people even has an on-call assassin.
2: How much fun did you have right (laughs) (laughs) I'm
3: not going to say how long I spent. While playing in the competition, Parzival meets Artemis, a game-playing legend. Instantly, he becomes a man in love. More, a conversation with Artemis gives Parzival an offbeat idea on how to win the first quest. It works, and Parzival is king of the mountain, first to win one of the three keys. Parzival keeps the trick just between friends, but lets Artemis, H, Show, and Dido in so they get keys too. This success makes Parzival a target for Sorrento, who tries to hire Parzival. But when Wade says, take this job and shove it, Sorrento thinks the gamer would be better off dead. Sorrento discovers Wade's real-life identity, and while nice girls don't explode, Wade's aunt and uncle do when Sorrento's agents blow up Wade's trailer. (laughs) You're proud of that, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) i haven't had this much fun since howard the duck (laughs) in the real world wade meets up with the screwballs who are his gaming friends discovering show is just an 11 year old karate kid and h is a woman and artemis real name samantha despite her large facial birthmark samantha and wade find true love Thus, the movie ends in a two-pronged climax when Wade decides to do the right thing and win Anorak's quest while Sorrento gives his people a license to kill Wade in the real world, and in the Oasis, tries to end Parzival's electronic dreams by killing Parzival's avatar, which would make him lose the two keys he has. But Parzival isn't just street smart. During the final countdown, he figures out Halliday's mind games and solves the million-dollar mystery by not winning but discovering the Easter egg in the Atari 2600 game Adventure. And as its finders keepers, Wade inherits the Oasis, but he'll need a table for five as he shares the company with his four friends who helped Wade win against all odds. And Wade causes a return of the living dead as he turns off the Oasis two days a week, forcing people to interact with real men as credits roll.
2: <laughs> are you going to tell us how many there were, or do people need to come and
3: post? Less than this movie has, I'll tell you that much. I didn't have Watto flying around in the background. So
2: a dense film and one that... I worried about how audiences that hadn't read the book were going to be able to consume all of this. It's a lot to learn, and I was surprised to find out the data dump is only 10 minutes long. But this thing starts with a 10-minute voiceover in which our main character explains what life is like in
3: 2045 data dump is right it is 10 minutes of terminology and because they're playing van halen trying to make us think we're watching fun scenes when in fact like the matrix they're trying to jack into our brain and let us learn about Halliday and moro and gregarious games and drones and the oasis and vr oh my god (laughs)
2: Although, fortunately, I want to say that Spielberg isn't really coming up with something we haven't seen before. I mean, VR has been out commercially now for several years. I mean, grandmas have put those cardboard glasses on their head and gone to Mars or what have you. So I don't think audiences need that much techno speak to understand what's going on. All they need is a kid to walk past uh, windows and seeing people... Dancing, playing tennis, boxing, living out virtual lives.
3: Pole dancing. Yeah, Yeah, VR is commonplace. We're going to be talking about VR more next week because, Stuart, you and I both entered the virtual world of Doom.
2: Yep. But these are classic Spielberg shots. He loves to use long takes, and I think it was just how he would introduce the world as a vertical trailer park. They're like trailers you think of, but high-rises as well. And when our main character gets to the bottom, did you happen to recognize the woman that makes the joke, Life
3: Getting You Down?, I didn't. I felt that it was a grounded reference because every single person Wade has passed has had a VR headset on, surfing or whatever, but when he hits the ground, there's a grounded person who's gardening and not in the VR world. I thought it wasn't very subtle of Spielberg to be like, this is literally grounded.
2: Not only that, but it is someone from the 80s, and I haven't seen her since. It's Julia
3: from Hellraiser. Oh, wow. <laughs> Whoa, now you look like the one that got slapped. <laughs> <laughs> That's because at first I thought you meant Kirsty. I'm like, she aged bad.
0: I was too taken in by her police synchronicity album shirt to spend too much time looking at her face, I guess.
3: Isn't that really
2: what hit me in this moment, is to realize that my childhood and all the things that I love, this is me. This future, this is how I'm going to look. This is me as a 60, 70-year-old, and it's an entirely different generation that's running the
3: world. And... Halliday, the person who made this VR world, I think what they're telling us is he was born in 1972 with the quarters on his eyes, right? which is one year younger than you, two years younger than me. He grew up where we grew up. We see him as a child playing Atari 2600. All of our pop culture youth is his pop culture youth. And thus, because everyone loves the world he created, what he lionized, everyone lionizes now.
2: I'm just gripped by this idea of like, oh, right, we're going to die. And what will the world become? Everything, all our points of reference, everything that we thought was the pinnacle, you know, Star Wars and all of that stuff will go away and something else will come. And what will that world look like? What a powerful concept for me at this point in my life.
3: Yeah, the fact that High School Musical will be somebody, the Star Wars of a generation.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And boy, does Ty Sheridan not look like the spitting image. Of young Steven Spielberg. I mean, you look at photos of Spielberg in his 20s making Jaws. It's him. It's Ty Sheridan.
0: Uh, with a little Andy Sandberg mixed in there for good measure.
3: Yeah, a little bit of Andy Sandberg, But I really paid attention to his timeless fashion. They did not put people in futuristic clothes. This isn't Back to the Future 2. He's wearing flannel, so he's wearing 90s fashion and a pretty indistinct t-shirt. A lot of the fashion is 80s, as we see people aerobicizing in their VR headsets, but this is a world that has regressed. We're told wage generation is called the missing millions because all they do is stay home, have pizzas delivered to them by drone, and jack into the virtual world, having no desire to go outside. There's no new fashion Unless it's on your avatar and something that you're plucking out and paying a few coins for.
2: Yeah, is it clear that he grew up not knowing the world before the Oasis? We know the Oasis was created in 2025. He's born in 2027. I mean, the book makes it very clear that he grew up inside it. That the Oasis, in many ways, is
0: his parents. It is pretty clear here. I mean, it's a commentary on my kid's generation. My daughter doesn't know a world without the internet. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, my son actually, he's 10 years older, so he does know a world kind of previous to the internet, but it's always kind of been there. So they made that pretty obvious that the Oasis has just always been in his world and his world.
3: And the fact that he says, as part of this voiceover, except for eating, sleeping, and bathroom breaks, whatever people want to do, they do in the Oasis. There's one big thing missing there, and that's called sex, but that means that... Virtual sex is replacing real-world sex? I mean, yes, you can't get an STD or an unwanted pregnancy, but also, that's called death of the species. Yeah, but this is
0: Spielberg.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's how someone who lived and grew up prior to the internet is going to feel about watching people jack into a virtual reality existence so readily. I mean, the only excuse given, it's kind of like the house with the broken windows, right? If you don't get that fixed, it just gets worse and worse. We heard there was a shortage on corn
3: syrup, (laughs) and then we heard there were some bandwidth wars. The bandwidth riots, and I swear I'd be out there smashing cars too if you took away (laughs) my internet. (laughs) But that's all it took, really, for people to just turn away. And I feel that, right? I mean, we all
2: feel the idea that... If real life, real politics are too divisive and too awful, and there's this outlet to go somewhere else where it doesn't exist, why wouldn't you go there? I mean, it's an idea worth exploring, but it's not an idea that Spielberg is going to entertain in this movie. He's going to see this very much
3: as the wrong decision. And that was my question about the book, and really my only question about the book, beyond I've heard the fact that it has a Howard the Duck reference, Was, is the book anti-VR or is this Spielberg bringing it in? Because this book, it's strange. It reminds me of an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where barkley played by dwight schultz spent too much time in the holodeck and it was really an episode about turn off your tv and it's hypocritical for a tv show to tell you turn it off and here we are living a life through a movie and being told by a movie maker turn off your screens turn off your vr and go outside is the book have that mission statement absolutely
2: not the book has no point The book has the point that the more you delve into the 80s specifically, the greater you are as a human being. And the only thing the character has to find is a girlfriend and his life is completely,
3: totally awesome. Great. I'm up for president. Next.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, which is funny because to Stuart's point, the author of the book is really cupping the 80s and stroking its ego. The idea of hey guys, maybe too much TV is not that great, go outside and play, started in the 80s. It started when we were watching cartoons. Prior to that, the 70s was, hey, sit down and watch TV, whatever, it's, it's not that big of a deal. But that message started to come out in our childhood. So it's not out of tone for Spielberg to bring it in here. Oh, I lived it. My parents would have done anything to get me out of the house when all
3: I wanted to do was play Atari and then play Nintendo and then play on a computer. That was my outside.
2: Hey, you guys, remember this one? When you're feeling bored and blue, watch out for the munchies. They yes. have ways of making you <laughs> munch when you're not, not hungry. hungry. Yeah, there were all kinds of <laughs> PSAs during our cartoons that told us we needed to be active, step away from the TV, don't be a couch potato. That word became a, a thing in the 80s.
3: It's no fun to eat what you can't even see, so don't drown your food. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, oh, all in Schoolhouse Rock. It was was a glorious time, wasn't it? Peak of civilization. I have to agree with Ernest Klein, The very best of human society coming out in the 1980s. Anyway, speaking of cartoons, did you guys know how much of this movie was going to be mocap, computer
3: animated? I assumed the majority of it would be. I did not realize going in how much of it would be Because the trailers are very fast cut. I know I saw some stuff that looked like a video game. The stuff of some orc shooting Freddy Krueger was the shot that I remembered most. And it felt like a cut scene out of the new Mortal Kombat where you really can play as Freddy Krueger. But I didn't realize what I've read. This could actually be up for best animated feature. For Oscars, you have to be 75% of animation. And this... Could very well hit that threshold. I was not expecting that. I didn't do a runtime comparison to find out if it's a long movie, two hours and 20 minutes. I don't know if 75% of that's animation, but it very well could be. I was wanting to know how this was done. It is so animated. I wanted to know if this was done like classical animation, the way Pixar does it, where you have... The actors do the voice and then you animate it. I'm like, did these actors record these voices back in 2015? No, it was all mocap, like Incredible Hulk or however they do Snoke, Andy Serkis level stuff. They put on the big suits and went around and got mocapped for all this VR. It's impressive visually, though. I really like the detail. And by intentionally making it fake, it never hits that uncanny valley where I feel it's scary, like Polar Express.
2: Yeah, Zemeckis did it for years, and I don't think anybody ever really loved that style. Spielberg already tried his hand with it in BFG. I didn't watch that one because it looked so ugly, but I don't mind it here. What I want to stress is, I agree, once we get to the Oasis and we see what we can be inside of it, it does not feel as unappealing as so often times when I see those mocap movies.
0: You know, I mean, just from a visual standpoint, this was either... The creative director's wet dream or nightmare because you're bringing all these disparate styles into the same realm now you know you have all these different properties that have their own unique look and feel to them but they all need to feel like they're living in the same world so that could be a challenge that is almost impossible to bring to screen or it could be something that i feel like they end up doing well and making it work i never felt like Any of the things that we're looking at, no matter where the character came from, felt like it was cut and pasted in the wrong way.
2: It's a lot of Warner Brothers
3: characters.
2: Batman pops up at least eight times in this day.
0: Yeah, I
3: was thinking the same thing. I mean, at first, it's just a cool reference, right? When they talk about scaling Mount Everest with Batman, you laugh. And then later in the movie, when Harley Quinn, and not just any Harley Quinn, but specifically Arkham Knight Harley Quinn shows up, I started realizing, wait. They own DC Comics, and wait, they own Mortal Kombat, and we see Goro come in here, but there were some Street Fighter characters, too. I noticed Ryu and Blanca in the background. It's not all Warner Brothers, but man, there's a lot of Warner Brothers. They did Gremlins, they bought New Line Cinema, so they own Freddy and Jason, who are both in here.
2: And again, who knows? You know, Spielberg, I think one of the reasons why he had to be the one to direct this is because he can clear the rights and get some of this together. And of course, Warner Brothers, yeah, Legendary Pictures owns Godzilla, and and they have their own characters. He couldn't go so far as to call George Lucas anymore and get those Star Wars characters, (laughs) because George Lucas (laughs) did sell them off, and of course, no Marvel is here as well. Disney is going to take a hard line in the sand here and say, we're not going to play. We are not, even for one film, and even though you're Steven Spielberg, going to let you have our characters. And this does feel like a battle that is coming. I do think in 2045 it will be Disney versus the rest of the
3: world. Probably just Disney versus Warner Brothers. And we won't have the bandwidth riots. We'll have the intellectual property wars where it goes even further and like they're arming people and it splits right down the middle from Disney World in Florida and Warner <laughs> Brothers in California and the middle is a battleground where they're shooting missiles. and Yeah,
2: Fox has already fallen and I don't think they'll be the last. I definitely think that Universal and even Sony or who knows, Netflix is going to get in the game too. My point is that this is an interesting idea to contemplate. The idea that we have branded characters in this world that's supposed to have every character we also find out that our main character
3: has friends but only in a virtual way h show and dito and it doesn't even seem like he's friends with show and dito it seems like those are h's friends his only friend is h and it seems like they're really drawing parallels between wade and and Halliday in that they both seem introverted. If you can have a virtual reality where everybody is there and you don't have to deal with their real life shit, they can be whatever they want to be. We're going to find out H, I suspected this because of the modulated voice, H is actually a woman presenting as a male orc the entire time. So people could be anyone and yet still Wade, or as he calls himself, Parzival in this virtual reality world has one friend the way Halliday had one friend and that is Ogden who was the co-creator I felt like they were doing a Steve Wozniak Steve Jobs thing where Halliday was the Wozniak he was the real brain who was creating and then you had Ogden an unrecognizable to me Simon Pegg because I didn't know Simon Pegg could do an
0: American voice yeah not too bad I mean A little bit better than some Brits we've seen in the past couple of weeks. Talk to you, Benedict Cumberbatch. (laughs) Again, Spielberg
3: isn't entirely subtle. During the voiceover, they say pretty soon Ogden was out of the picture, as they literally remove him from the picture by zooming in on Halliday. But making that parallel between those two characters so that when we find out, to me, it's a little bit sad that Wade has spent his entire life learning every bit of minutia about Holiday's life. But there's a kinship there in that they're both these kind of outcast loner geeks.
2: Not only that, but there's a contest. Eventually, we get through all of this data dump and we learn what the plot really is. And it is Not unlike Willy Wonka, you can get a golden ticket to the candy factory. This is the VR factory. All you have to do is figure out three riddles. There are three keys hidden throughout this oasis and I assume the more you know about Halliday, the more you might be able to put together where he might stash them. What he would think was important. That this was a game in which he was leading you not only to keys, but a certain conclusion. The real shock of That book was to realize that the main character, it was only because he knew every detail about the man's life that he was able to figure out how to play the game. But he never learned anything about himself. There never was a reason to pity Halliday. And here, I think it's very clear from the first time we see Mark Rolance that he is a nerd who only went on one date And really has a lot to regret about his life, no matter what he created with the Oasis.
3: He's giving a real Crispin Glover performance, I felt.
2: Yes, it is. Yeah. And boy, does Spielberg love Relance now. He's in every film, it seems like. Starting from Bridge of Spies, where he won the Oscar. And he's good. His funeral scenes were some of the first laughs in this film.
3: Oh, all the Star Trek stuff. (laughs) They actually make that coffin, by the way, where you could be buried in the torpedo that Spock was fired out of and the stained glass Starfleet insignia and the funeral flowers made out of the Enterprise.
2: And yet his avatar is not a Trekkie
3: reference. It is Anorak the All-Knowing.
2: I presumed because this was a Warner Brothers property, they own Lord of the Rings, I would think this was just some wizard I didn't remember, like Gandalf in the background of Lord of the Rings. Is it clear that Anorak is a character from Halliday's days
3: playing Dungeons and Dragons? No, that wasn't clear to me. I It looks and sounds like Gandalf. And I did like how Halliday's voice changed and sounded much more like Mark Relance during that period. He gains confidence when he's the all-knowing.
2: Yeah, okay. That's because they go in a very different direction. I want to say up to this point, you're getting things in different orders. But more or less, the setup in the book, it was in Oklahoma City. And there were a few other things that are different. There were more people living in the trailer with wade but by and large book and movie are mirroring each other and from this point on starting with this first challenge the first challenge in the book was built on a DD campaign that halliday ran in his youth and it's because wade knows that module and finds it it's out of print but goes and finds it that he's able to solve something that nobody else can
3: here's a point of frustration for me in this movie When we finally find out about this quest, the challenge is to find three keys, and five years have passed, and nobody's even found one key, and then some long-forgotten gunter cracked the first clue and found the first challenge opening a portal. That's just a throwaway line? Why even do that? Why not just have that portal open upon the death? Why do we have to have this mysterious gunter that found this portal? It feels to me like a dropped plot thread, and... I felt like I was a step ahead of this movie. I'm like, obviously Ogden's going to be the revealed bad guy, right? I thought there would be some VR bad guy. And when we rip it off, Scooby-Doo, like, oh, it's Simon Pegg.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I wonder why they didn't do that. Honestly, it feels strange that we have a third guy that was just their intern in the past and then created IOI, which is the rival company that now makes all the tech you use to access the Oasis. They have a squadron of people that are trying to win
3: it with corporate money called the Sixers. And they should be called the Fives. IOI in binary 101 equals 5. Why Sixers? Uh, (laughs) Artie,
2: you're getting a little too much for me. I... You can have that debate with Ernest Klein. I that's not
3: my concern at all. Out of all the creatives we've ever reviewed, I feel like Ernest Klein has the highest percentage of possibly listening to this.
2: <laughs> the point is we have these sixers and we know they're bad because they have IOI on their visor and they don't have names. They have numbers and and that makes them different than people with personalities who just are looking for the Easter egg. That's what the ultimate prize is. If you get the three keys, you're going to get an Easter egg. And those people are called Gunchers because they're egg hunters.
0: And, you know, in, in the real world, they are people who work for the corporation. They're plugged in. They have all the resources they need. Online, they're the type of person that you run into in a game that instead of leveling up. Naturally, in a game, they bought the expansion packs to get all the gear you need, so it's an analog for cheating in, in this world,
2: yeah, doping or what have you, or calling the Nintendo Power Line, right? Like, <laughs> yeah,
3: bothering those guys for
0: hours,
2: you gotta earn it yourself. Like, that's the way a true gamer would
3: feel. I feel like it's not the Nintendo Power Line, it's like when I used to play Star Wars Galaxies and I could go to eBay and buy like the super gun with real world money, and then I'd have to meet up with the guy in the game and he'd hand me the gun. Remember that, Justin? Did you do any of that?
0: I didn't, but I I know people who have. Yes.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And buying Star Wars credits for real world money. (laughs) It's that kind of cheating. And again, it's kind of unsubtle that when we're introduced to the person who will be the bad guy. It's again during this voiceover. We're still in the first 10 minutes here and we see Nolan Sorrento played by Ben Mendelsohn and he's just called a dickweed. We are being told, not shown, that this guy's a jerk. And Ben Mendelsohn... I did not recognize him from Rogue One here. I kept thinking he looks a lot like the principal from The Breakfast Club.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, he's always the bad guy. Going all the way back to his Australian film days in Animal Kingdom. So you see Ben Mendelsohn and you just know, usually, yeah, he's mentally deranged. This is a much more normal character
0: for him, actually. He's just a suit that wants to make money. With what IOI is doing is also another callback to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where... One of the contestants there was so rich that their dad just bought tons of chocolate and had a his factory of people trying to find one of those golden tickets. That's exactly what this corporation is doing here.
3: Oh, good! I didn't catch that. That's a very good point.
2: Yeah, that's all the people that work for him. I think we end up. Supposing to like them, we'll see them over time every now and then we cut back to the Oology team and they're sitting there looking through Hitchhiker's Guide or what have you for their clues, feeding things into his earpiece. They're nerd, so they're cool, but they sold out. That's why we can't like them is that they're in the Oology team hunting for that Easter egg for a corporation who... It's clear because corporations are bad, in shorthand it's very clear, but I don't think it's very clear how they trap people into debt until way late in this film.
3: Yeah, I didn't know why they had these loyalty centers. It is explained much later. Can I just say, though, whoever made this guy CEO of a company, he has a horrible business strategy. His entire business strategy is based upon, we're going to win the game. They have profits. They are the number two company in the world. They make the equipment that you use to get into this game, the Suits that let you feel women rubbing your crotch, the goggles, the gloves, they sell it all. They should be working on engineering to make better equipment, not funneling so many resources into this terrible, terrible business strategy. <laughs> no, nah, I, I get it. Halliday has
2: restrictions on the Oasis. He wants it to be a certain way, and that's ultimately why he had the falling out with Ogden, was as they started looking for more money and it became, you know, less of a game and more of a place to advertise that was against Halliday's principles, his ethics. And so finding his Easter egg is really about getting the oasis back to what he wanted it to be. And that's what Percival will ultimately do. But here at the start, we need to show why this race is so impossible and why after five years, no one has been able to beat Kong. And it's a good action
0: scene, I think. Speaking about how the book opens, when you're going to the movies, I don't know that I want our first challenge to be guys sitting around playing Dungeons & Dragons. So I think starting with a race is a visual way to get us kicked into this world and see the mechanics of it.
3: My instant thought is,
0: they say nobody's
3: ever finished the race. Nobody has ever crossed that finish line. The point isn't to win the race. The point is to survive the race. Why are they racing i'd be like going 10 miles an hour and (laughs) easy easy
0: yeah
2: (laughs) it's said that the only people racing at this point are the gunters and the Sixers. I think it's just, this corporation is so intimidating. I think they maybe set the tone. And, you know, H has a monster truck, so he's going to be okay. Not just any monster truck. Bigfoot. Yeah. The original. You're right. And our hero, Percival, he's just kind of a dude. You know, he's got arm tats and wavy hair. He spent his coin on his haircut, so he doesn't have any gas for the DeLorean, which is, of course, taken from the Robert Zemeckis film, Back to the Future.
3: Not just the DeLorean, he modded it to add the Knight Rider woo-woo on the front of it, too. So it's a <laughs> Knight Rider, Back to the Future mashup.
2: And I think this is why Spielberg got Alan Silvestri instead of his usual composer, John Williams. is because Silvestri has that Back to the Future theme. They're going to play it from time to time. And he just made that music that we think of of this kind of movie. I think he kind
3: of ripped himself off at times. The da-da-da kind of score. I mean, when he plays the da -da da 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 I mean, yes, that's a callback to himself. Maybe because this movie is so damn referential, he felt he had license to crib off himself. But to me, it felt a little bit like Silvestri on autopilot.
2: And the interesting detail to me is that all these vehicles they have are basic models that wear skins. Like, it's not really like he has the DeLorean. He has like a tiny car that he bought a skin of the DeLorean for. He's positioned on the racetrack next to someone who has a normal motorbike, but it has the skin of Tetsuo's bike from Akira. Love that little detail. That's where he's going to meet his crush, someone that he already knows as a sixer fixer and the heroine of this film, Artemis.
0: Yeah, and what does he say? It's, she's famous because she's a, a twitcher? Basically what Artemis is is she's internet famous for, what, showing streams of herself playing the game on a YouTube of the future? It's a thing that I don't
3: understand But there is fame and fortune to be found just playing games on either Twitch or YouTube these days. And I think she's the best of them. She does walkthroughs. Come on, let's face it. Guys are more prone to hit subscribe on female gamers profiles (laughs) than male gamers profiles, especially females who make themselves look like Artemis. And I didn't even realize till I hit the wiki that it's like Artemis with a three instead of an E. It's all that leet speak.
0: Yeah. And
2: Artemis, the character is from Greek mythology. It was the Huntress. And here, yeah, maybe she, someone already had the correct spelling and she had to modify it with the gamer details. It's cute, isn't it? And Percival, it's not spelled right either. He is the knight that found the Holy Grail on his own. They have a conversation here that I can't help feeling is hypocritical for our female star. She's gonna ultimately be like Morpheus. She's gonna be telling him that he's not living right, that he's so obsessed with this virtual world when he should care about the real world, and that's what she's really racing for. The conflict that I get from the start is he shouldn't be worried about losing his coins. He should go all in and just race to do it and win because that's what's important. But Winning is only going to happen if you have a lot of coins. The reason why she's able to have that cool bike... Is because she's raced enough to collect the cachet to buy that so it's not like I could get out there on
3: a little tricycle and look like <laughs> Gumby and make it <laughs> and in fact the whole reason Parzival is racing he takes the spot in the back he's waiting for people to crash opening that big DeLorean door and letting all the coins from the crash cars because when you die your loot falls and you know it's like Sonic the Hedgehog you get hit by a spike and all your rings pop out as these cars crash he's just picking up the coins it's looting dead bodies basically
2: it's how he's going to get gas he's low on his gas meter and he can't afford to pay for it because we saw him get a new hairdo and that shows that he's vain that he wants to be seen in
3: a certain way how is that a something about Mary hairdo i didn't see it sticking up in front it wasn't crusty
2: i think that was just a raz.
0: <laughs> that was one that really unlike arnie's introduction stuck out like a sore thumb there's so many other references you can make to make fun of somebody's hair and that one just did not roll off the tongue And it also didn't make sense visually to what they were talking about. So, yeah, I I didn't quite get where they were coming from with that one.
2: I just think that H thinks he's funnier than he is. Uh, You know, this race is good. I feel like it gets more intense than a Fast and Furious movie pretty quick because we just have things that would be impossible to avoid. Spikes, wrecking balls, the T-Rex is in Chinatown. And, yes, Kong always destroys the road to the finish line. There's just no way past.
3: And the T-Rex scene, that was right out of Jurassic Park with the T-Rex coming up behind the cars, the way it chased Jeff Goldblum and the little Jeep thing. I'm like, Spielberg, you said you're not going to do yourself, but there is this
2: well yeah and he has to he has the rights to it he can get it but more to the point this is old Spielberg using the things that he's learned to talk to the young Spielberg so it's important thematically that he puts these things
0: I think this race visually is doing what it needs to do though you know it's showing us the stakes in this world because like you said if you lose your coin you're starting from scratch and if the Oasis is everything then it's going to be a while before you can build yourself back up to even start competing again towards this thing so it's not without stakes and i think that's something that they need to set up early here so you can understand that you know even if we don't understand where the bigger story's going yet, that there's real life and death stakes behind the scenes that at least in the oasis things have consequences and it's going to be a long time before we get to Need for Speed the movie, but as somebody who's played
3: a lot of racing games, some of this felt very true to car racing games, like where the road is broken and you have to take this leap and turn in the air and then just land almost like a Hot Wheels set with the jumps and you're back on the track. I mean, I've never played Need for Speed with King Kong smashing my car, but (laughs) the rest of this felt like it could really be in a racing game. So as a gamer that was appealing to me this was bringing me into making me feel like this does fit as one of our video game movies and not just some vr film
0: very much like burnout i don't know if you've ever played burnout but it's about the environment more than it is about racing it's about crashing and knocking other cars off the track
2: and true the form to that artemis wouldn't have cared if she did get killed by kong because again She's defined as someone that doesn't care about materialism in a virtual world. She will just get back out there and earn the coins to come back and play again another day. I take it that she hasn't been to this race. This might have been the first time that she's ever been there because she doesn't know that Kong is hiding underneath the broken road. And it takes Percival, because he has a crush, I don't know if he would have done it for anyone, but he saves her from being taken by Kong. But
3: he has done this before, and he also seems a little bit shocked when Kong is there, so... Yeah, I got the feeling this is the furthest that he's made it in the race. Okay, that's a good way of taking it. I would have thought he knew.
2: And again, that goes in contrast to the thinking that he isn't a risk taker that would risk his coins. Well, if he's played before, he's lost before. The conflict that Spielberg wants to insert here isn't exactly demonstrated by this race, but you get the point.
3: And the point is really the slow-mo shot where he pulls Artemis off the bike, and the two are spinning and clasping arms, and it's the beginning of our love story here, where he doesn't quite get catfished, but she's not what she appears to be. Well, she (laughs) appears to be Alyssa Milano in The Sims. (laughs) I thought from that voice, I'm like, we're going to have to see this person in real life, so I didn't think it was them. But based off the voice, I really thought it was Mila Kunis.
0: Oh, you know, I caught a little bit of that. I could see that. But yeah, obviously that's not who she was going to be in the real world. Too old for this role.
2: And yes, there is going to be a courtship because her bike got totaled. It means they have to go back to H's workshop and they have a debate about who knows more about Halliday. They're so proud of knowing his favorite restaurant is Chuck E. Cheese. Hey, you worked there. Did you serve him? It's no one's favorite restaurant. <laughs> I cannot believe that.
0: Let's not even think about how creepy it is that they make a deal that Halliday's favorite restaurant was Chuck E. Cheese. Never mind he didn't have a girlfriend or children. This old guy is just hanging out at Chuck E. Cheese by himself. And what's wrong with that? Yeah,
2: because, <laughs> <laughs> again, it's such a classic definition of a nerd that like went on one date and never had children. Or I'm sorry, but when you're super rich... They find you. Look at
3: Bill Gates. Yeah. Bill Gates never had a date. He married like a model. Melinda Gates is hot. Look at <laughs> Rick Okazick from The Cars. It does not matter when yeah, you're that rich. But he was an introvert. He was stuttering and stammering. The hottest woman in the world could come on to him, and I think he'd flee. Yeah, I get that. And
2: that's not a bad concept to explore. Again, if this is the young version of Halliday, he wants to learn what Halliday didn't. That's why he is going to end up going back to these archives again and again to look at key moments from his life to see how Halliday might be cueing and signaling that these are the things he would change, that the race is going to be built around these
3: moments. This was a very clumsy insert with the first trip to the archives. It's after Percival has the conversation with Artemis. Something she said stuck with him about, How Holiday doesn't like rules. So there wouldn't be a rule that you don't get past King Kong. So he goes to this memory of Holidays where Holiday, CEO, it's right about the time Ogden quits. He wasn't necessarily fired. He quit because he felt people were spending too much time in VR. And he wanted Holiday to make rules to get people out in the real world saying it's not a game. But Holiday... Is doing a menial janitorial task cleaning up some party? We don't know what the party was. There's beer bottles, there's champagne, there's confetti. It is mentioned that it was a company
2: event. So, yeah, it was. you get the sense that they were just at gregarious games in the
0: aftermath of Christmas or selling some big game. I appreciated that little detail. Rather than just having them sit around an office again having a conversation, this added a little bit of real-worldness to it. Just that, yeah, it's after a party. That's why they're still hanging out having a conversation that ends up being heavier than what you might have thought. After a party. It's a good juxtaposition there.
2: I just find this notion that we have so much security footage from nanny cams to police scanners to what have you that you can just reassemble someone's entire life like a museum diorama. It's just a really neat conceit. The Spielberg has done this before with Jurassic Park, but suddenly we're the dinosaurs, and that's an interesting notion.
3: It's a step away from precogs, right? I mean, the fact that you have all of this data, putting it together, but he also wanted it done. Halliday built these archives himself. They also said it was from photographs, so he helped put it all in. He had logged every movie he'd seen and how many times and every game he played, every book he read. But it is clumsy to me when Parzival's like, there's nothing here, walks around and then Holiday's like, why can't we go backwards? Just put the pedal to the metal. Bill and Ted did it. Bill and Ted didn't put any pedals to metals. They hopped in a phone booth. They went back in time (laughs) is
2: the point. The the idea is that people are always concerned with going forward. I think the fight that they're having is about the future of their company. He wants things to remain unformed, to just live in this oasis. He's regressed. Why wouldn't he want everyone else to play in this regressed state? I take it to mean that Ogden is thinking more about money and establishing rules that make it more clearly defined. And so that's why they broke up. And that's why this line is significant. But I would also say you could probably have guessed this even without going to this museum. Look at where they're racing. It's Liberty Island, where the Statue of Liberty is. The statue is facing away from New York, which is just ocean in reality. All of these racers are following an illusion. They're heading into a fake New York where behind them would be the real New York if you looked at the real landmark. And again, I think it's Spielberg's way of saying if you know the realness behind something, it will
0: lead you to the correct answer. I'm kind of in between both of you. I think the way the information was conveyed was a little clunky. I think the Easter egg itself is uh, at first a little weak because, I mean... At any given time over the years, somebody's car could have backfired and accidentally gone in reverse and found this completely by accident. Yeah, it happened at Better Off Dead. Sure. But once we get into that under track, I think what they're doing here is really neat. We get to see the mechanics under the race in the Oasis, and that really works ...for what we're trying to accomplish here. It's an Easter egg, you're doing something special that other people have not done. How are you going to show that visually? Oh, we get to see a little bit of the digital structure underneath the road... ...and we get to see King Kong waiting to jump out and not be aware that you're down there.
2: It's a reminder that this is just a game. And that it's not real, and that there are mechanics that make it fun. But Spielberg is always pointing the viewer to think about the world beyond the Oasis and to prioritize that in some way. And so, I think it's right. You can agree or not that we spend too much time on the internet, I suppose, but I think it's right that a filmmaker would take a point of view about what people are doing with this technology and dramatize it. Spielberg is right to have put this idea into his version of Ready Player One.
3: I like the little details, like when he hits the winner's circle, there's not a band, there's just floating instruments that will trumpet his arrival there, and then the all-knowing comes out, gives him the key, and says, get a clue, and a scroll pops out, and I thought this was it, like, he has the key, but no, other people can come and get the key. He's going to tell H and Artemis how to do it, H is going to tell the other two how to do it, and because they're all doing it, the Sixers are going to see what's happening. And the Sixers are going to get the keys.
2: And they become sixth place because this is the high five. There's a scoreboard. There are five gunters on the board. It's weird. You know, they're all independent. There's this anxiety about clanning up is the terminology. The idea of working as a team is kind of frowned on. They want to be the one that does the mission and gets the Easter egg. And yet clearly they're helping each
3: other out. I think this is a ham-fisted way to show Parzival's fear of attachment. I don't clan up. But yet obviously you do you just don't put it official it's like i'm not going to get married i'm only going to live with you for 40 years and have kids
2: well a lot of people live that way and again spielberg
3: (laughs) is making a judgment
2: about you if you live that way and you feel judged it is happening this movie is doing that but again whether you agree with spielberg's judgment or not what i would advocate is at least it has a point of view and that to me is what's making this mission feel better now that we've reached the end of act one i've Check my watch the second time I watched this. And Spielberg is following rules. Maybe Halliday didn't want to follow rules, but Spielberg knows the rules of filmmaking. 30 minutes in, you want to change things up. And so he solved the first mission. He is on the board. He is a celebrity... How is he going to handle suddenly being a star after being a nobody in the stacks?
0: Well, about the way you would expect a teenager or young adult to handle a a sudden windfall of cash and fame. He goes shopping and it's a little bit superficial at first. He's looking for new clothes and a new hairdo. It shows his naivety. You know, he goes out without a disguise. Maybe that's on purpose. Maybe he just doesn't know that people are going to be into him. This is also
3: the time where we're going to bring in the bad guy. He's not only got a hundred thousand coins and a Zemeckis cube now that he went and bought with it, but now Sorrento has him on the radar. At the beginning, Sorrento's like, well, who cares about this guy? Because the loyalty centers are opening up and they make more money for them than the hardware. But this is really where he also goes to rock. TJ Miller, immediately recognizable from that voice. It helped that there was a Deadpool 2 trailer right before this.
0: <laughs> Nailed it.
2: Yeah. And he goes to him in this avatar. We set up Sorrento. First, he answers to a board. So we know he's not autonomous. There are rules that he has to follow. The stock is plummeted. So he has to care because of that. Normally, he would.
3: 6% isn't a plummet. Have you seen our real stock market? <laughs> At any rate, I do love
2: his idea of Pure O2 is going to just basically put as many ads as we can handle before we go into a seizure. <laughs> that
3: was a laugh <laughs> moment in my audience.
2: <laughs> but it, again, hypocritical, because how many Dorito bags do you see in this film? Oh my God, and Carl's Jr. cups? Yeah, the product placement is happening in this film. I don't know how they can say it's a bad thing with a straight face. But anyway, we're all hypocrites. Sorrento, is he Superman Clark Kent? He's Bossman69. His avatar looks a lot to me like a Clark Kent that isn't disguising himself very well. He comes out of the War of the Worlds tripod and meets with this Rock character who
3: looks like Castle Grayskull, actually. (laughs) Yeah, they start on his center. They make a big deal with him. And it's the same thing with H, that they have no midriff. They have holes in their body, which very cool And Death Becomes Her. Not quite as cool when it's already a cartoon, but- the thing with I Rock is that he's such a dichotomy. He looks tough. He looks like this big badass. And it's T.J. Miller who has carpal tunnel syndrome of the neck, if that's a thing. And <laughs> hates steampunk and hates pirates.
0: <laughs> and I kind of love that we never get to meet him in the real world, because then we can just pretend that it is T.J. Miller, which is perfect for this character. Agreed. It's a guy who's in the game, but kind of working the fringes and not really playing by the rules and selling things on eBay, essentially, for hacks and whatnot on the side, so...
3: Plus his name, I Rock.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he is a gamer bully. You know, this is a version
2: of a villain in a virtual world. Sorrento will also have a heavy in the real world, but this guy has gone and killed a steampunk pirate and taken this orb of Asavox. And that's going to give them the ability to create a force field no one can penetrate. They're setting up things in the future. So smart of Spielberg to do all of this stuff. I want to just dog on this book about how a lot of these ideas were thrown out early and they were never built up and Klein just didn't know how to tell a good story. How to make the most of suspense and teasing ideas. Here's Spielberg. He really does know how to introduce ideas and tease them for later use.
3: And it's also during this time they start investigating the second clue and part of the second act is really going to focus now on the romance between Artemis and Parzival, a leap not taken, and a creator who hates his own creation... They wonder if it's this club that Halliday built because he had a date. The one date you've talked about, Stuart, with a woman named Karen.
2: Kira, really? Well, that was her Dark Crystal avatar name.
3: She wanted to go dancing, so he took her to the movies and then created this place where they could go dancing later. There was never a second date. Kind of cold of the woman to marry his best friend, right? She went out on a date with him, tried to kiss him, he backed away, and so she went and
0: maybe she was a gold digger. She was a groupie, maybe.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, I could be kinder. I've definitely known people that started dating one friend and ended up marrying another. Did those people
3: remain friends at the end?
2: Well, no. Actually, no. They didn't remain <laughs> friends. Yeah, yeah. No, they remained married. The second team, it worked out. But yes, the two guys did have a split. Not over her, but I'm sure that didn't help. There was an opportunity for Halliday to have what Ogden ended up having, which is a happy marriage for many decades. And he couldn't Pull the trigger. He, in secret, created a nightclub where he could dance with her in... The real world actually just went on one date and then never called her again. And so is that significant if the clue is teasing a creator who hates his creation and a leap not taken? That's where the Jade Key is going to be, is when you go to this nightclub and jump into a zero-gravity dance floor. It's end up not being the case.
0: No, all it really serves to do is put them on the map and are being able to be tracked by IROC. <laughs> who who calls in, does he call in the IOI guys or they come because they're tracking as well? They come because I rock gets a call from Sorrento and, IROC's like, I can't talk now. I'm
3: on them. And so he sends in the IOI guys who really kind of screws up what IROC had planned. IROC probably would have been more successful. We're supposed to believe he is a badass. These IOI guys, they're stormtroopers. They can't hit a damn thing. They can't do anything right. They don't even want to be there. They are slaves. They do not really care about helping the cause some do and some don't. I don't think these are the slaves.
2: I think these might be the people that signed up because they get cool living places and lots of money and what have you. He can buy some people and then he can enslave other people with debt. I'm not sure who specifically this Black Ops team is supposed to be, but I do think Irox mad because Sorrento thinks they can just kill Parseval and Artemis when in fact that would just mean they come back with less coins. I don't think they would lose the key.
3: They lose the key. They lose the key and that could be collected? And I don't think it could be collected, but you notice when they eventually die at the end, they leave the scoreboard. They lost their keys. When well,
2: everything closed down at that. I, again, I think it's untested. We cannot know. Because, yeah, obviously the right decision is if you can kill them and get the key, Parseval would have a lot less groupies taking selfies and more people aiming to assassinate him wherever he went. And I think they're telling us Because he doesn't, that key is going to be with him no matter what.
3: I think the end tells us differently, but the other thing that happens here is after a couple meetings online, Percival is in love with Artemis and says, I want to meet in the real world. And she says, you'll be disappointed. This to me felt like a very solid message from the movie. Because going into a VR world, you can make your analogs. You're watching too many movies. You're spending too much time on the internet. But when she says you'd be disappointed, this isn't my real body or my real face. You see what I want you to see and you know about me what I want you to know. That's called Facebook, right? I mean, that is the entire MTV catfish thing. The thing about Facebook, there's these studies, and I don't know if it's correlation or causation. I'm not giving credence to the studies, but they say that Facebook usage is tied to depression. The more you use Facebook, the more depressed you are. And part of that is because people on Facebook don't post I just stubbed my toe, they post hey I got a promotion. They don't post hey look at me I haven't showered and it's 4pm. They post hey I'm in this really cool place. Look I'm at Disney World. I'm in Tibet. And so people feel like others are living better lives when they see what they want you to see. How many people have to take 50 selfies before they find one they feel is worth posting?
2: Not only that but we see Wade himself. Not Percival. Wade has new clothes. He ordered this X1 suit and we see him on his omnidirectional tread mill just Feeling confident in a new way, and and she's able to rub up against him, and he can feel that more. He's realizing what he's missing by not having close flesh and blood contact.
3: It was a little risque, right? When his crotch goes red. I mean, this is a first <laughs> date, Artemis. What are you doing? You're that's third base at least.
0: Yeah, it, it's virtual.
3: Now that's why he's in love, right?
0: <laughs> exactly. That's why it's believable for guys to immediately understand. Oh, he's in love. While well, girls are rolling their eyes at this point, like, why is he in love already?
2: Yeah, it got some titters the second time I saw the film. There were definitely some people that were more into the references and less into the YA love story. But this feels like something you'd see in any of the films from Hunger Game and PETA and what have you. It does feel like it's made for a younger audience. Doesn't make a bad thing, but it may be problematic
0: for people our age. have to think about that first love kind of cuteness. Even having said that, Stuart, I don't think it's all that sappy. I think it's a little naive, but I don't think it's over the top sappy for him to be expressing himself this way at this point.
2: Agreed. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with it, but there were those very vocal in my audience who did.
0: Yeah, I had
3: no problem with it. It felt very wrote Truthfully, what I was expecting was a love triangle. I had guessed H was a woman and H was hanging out and like he was trying on various outfits including I laughed at the thriller outfit for the date and this feels like any of those 80s rom-coms like Teen Wolf where there's Boof and Michael J. Fox is hanging out with Boof and talking about the blonde. I thought that we might end up with H. and Percival together. And the biggest laugh both times I saw the movie is when H. says, you don't know anything about her. She could be a 300-pound guy living in his mom's basement in suburban Detroit. And her name is Chuck. (laughs) Yeah, and
2: I think that Spielberg would have been tempted to show that. But it was a big part of the book and wisely excised, not because it is a lifestyle that needs to be excised, but they go into great detail about how H was a lesbian who was persecuted and had to run away from home, created an avatar where she could be free. The only hint of that is that later we see that she's kind of game for the woman that's naked in the tub in The Shining, but they just kind of make her gender neutral. I don't think you realize that she's gay.
3: No, it's not brought up. The second time I did wonder, I paid more attention to how they played H knowing what I know, and they hired a LBGQ advocate to play that role, so I think they're paying homage to that. Spielberg got in a lot of trouble because he did that to The Color Purple.
2: Yeah, I mean I think that he's just kind of shy about sex in general. When I think of Spielberg movies, I think he's kind of like this character. He's kind of nerdy and he just doesn't... I can't ever think of any great sex scene or love scene. It's usually... Romanticized. He's comfortable with movie shots, classic ways of thinking about
0: romance, but full on carnal sex. That ain't Spielberg. That's kind of what I was saying earlier when I said it's Spielberg. I mean, that's, you know, a little bit this side of a Sunday night Disney movie as far as when it comes to risque, sexual type of stuff, but it's always this side of safe as well. So, you know, you're not going to get anything too grotesque or too much for even younger kids, 10, 11, to sit through. Yeah, he's
2: a brand. So we know that it will only go so far here. And in fact... We find out Artemis is pissed that he said his name out loud. Even if it's a declaration of love, it's naive because now the bad guys have his name and know who he really is. Through cross-referencing, Rock is able to pinpoint Wade Watts as this kid in the Columbus stacks. And so it means that Sorrento can go for a one-on-one
3: meeting with him. Thank God they did this. I felt... Like, this movie had zero stakes. At any moment, you could just take off the goggles, right? You mentioned he's run this race before, so he had to have lost before, but that doesn't mean he crashed and died. It just meant he stopped and took off the goggles. You could take off the goggles at any time. A VR world death means nothing except loss of coin. By revealing his name, at first I'm like, why is she flipping out? But when IROC cross-references who got an X-1 suit recently named Wade, I'm like, good. There's real-world stakes here. We're going to be able to attack the body as well as the mind.
2: It's always a tricky thing in these movies. I think about Inception and the layers of dreams and what does it matter if you die in a dream. Avatar, that was a whole big issue of like, well, so what if their avatar dies? Uh, you know, that you have to create something that matters. And here, we're expected to carry about Aunt Alice and her abusive boyfriend, Rick, who was introduced very early. He was part of the scrum that was fighting for that artifact that makes you a robot that Daito ended up winning. He's a no-good gamer
3: who's also a no-good person that spent the rent money on VR upgrades. Not the rent money. I thought this was interesting. The house money. They were saving up to get out of the stacks. Right. Aunt Alice's dream was to buy a house, and this guy spent the money on these game upgrades, and it really was kind of of Wade's fault. I mean, he did take
0: the good gloves and (laughs) replace them with his broken gloves. Well, hold on a second, because you called him a gamer. I don't think this guy was a gamer. I think he's a gambler. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what they're trying to get across here is that in this world in 2045, it's just so ubiquitous that sure, anybody can hop in, but not everybody goes to a casino every day. This guy isn't necessarily good at gaming. He's not a gamer per se. He's trying to take a shortcut by using this contest or whatever's going on in the Oasis to get somewhere else, and he lost.
2: Yeah, good distinction. You're absolutely right. It's part of why he's so loathsome and why we actually don't care whether he blows up. But maybe we're to like Aunt Alice because it's Wade's last tether to his mother. It's a mother's sister. And
3: so, you know, you never want your caretakers to die violently. And one really great moment of 3D was when those stacks fell. When the stacks fell towards wade and he has to run at the screen that was one great moment where i'm like damn that really looks like it's gonna hit him
2: yeah agreed there are good moments here i mean spielberg has not lost his gift for visual storytelling and it's clear by the way he's setting up the shots that he's taking full advantage of the technology that he's using there is a whole squadron of drones that are flying in with bombs and blowing up the entire stack of trailers all being led by Finale, a new character, not in the book, but I think it was wise for Sorrento to have a hip person in the virtual world and in the real world.
3: Here's this ruthless woman. And since it's the first woman we see, I immediately think it's Artemis. She'd worked her way up the aisle ranks and became his right hand man trying to defeat the cancer from the inside. I thought for sure, because it's the only woman. Wow, I that, that's interesting. It never occurred to me, because of
2: course I read the book, and it didn't occur to me there either, but again, this character wasn't in the book. Just
0: going by voices, I didn't see that as what was going on, but it would have been an interesting way for them to go with this. It was
3: because we get introduced to
0: Finale, and I could never
3: tell Finale, like the season Finale. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's what they're referencing. It's kind of a
3: dumb name, but you <laughs> know, whatever. But... We're introduced to her right after the scene where Artemis runs off and says a real Gunter would do anything to stop IOI. We get this big mission statement that she's not about the game and she gives a lecture to Percival about how you've never lived in the real world. You don't care about anything except this fake world and the fake reality we have. And so... Since we have that huge speech and then are immediately introduced to Finale, that's why I thought what I thought. I thought there was a linkage there. Mm -hmm. The
2: fact of the matter is she is going to teach him that, but it's a different hitman that's coming. Just a guy with chloroform and a face tattoo that's going to smuggle him off to the Rebellion. We're now at the one-hour mark. I want to point out this movie's pretty long at 2.20. We're not even halfway, and he's taken the red pill. He has now woken up to the reality of what the real Columbus, Ohio is like. And it's slower. It's a beautiful garden on a rooftop, and it can be so much lovelier than anything in the Oasis. Is anyone buying this? (laughs) You would rather be on this (laughs) rooftop with Samantha and her
3: birthmark than being in the Oasis? In Columbus, Ohio... (laughs) And I found that when Spielberg filmed the stacks, he desaturated the color. It was meant to look bland and meant to look boring. And the Oasis was so colorful. And here he kind of splits the difference. It's supposed to be real because real life, honestly, New York City looks better punched up in color in 4K than it does when you get to New York. So I think the same thing's going on here. This is reality. I was surprised... About the birthmark. The fact that she had something to make her conventionally unattractive was to be expected. But she wasn't a 300-pound guy named Chuck. She has this large birthmark that covers her eye that she hides with her hair and is downplayed in many scenes. I felt like the makeup at times was less prominent and a couple of scenes more prominent.
2: Yeah, it's a fairy tale. It's a fantasy. It doesn't completely work. I mean, what if it had been Chuck? I mean, that would be more bold. To think in those terms makes me think I'm watching a movie that's going to challenge me. This movie is like, oh, there's something slightly wrong there. And they could have pushed this a lot further if they'd wanted to, if they didn't want to play so closely into a teen romance.
3: Yeah, I've seen people with real birthmarks that are large. And usually they have like hair coming out of them. I mean, you could have taken the same birthmark and gone bigger with it and made him have a challenge to show that he doesn't care about it. He does care about the person inside.
2: The honest truth is the Oasis is better for some people who can't be helped. I think Avatar did a better job of this. There was a soldier that lost the ability of using his legs, and he was able to run and move again in a new
3: body. That's properly demonstrating the appeal of an alternate VR world. If I can go way back to the original Star Trek series, remember Captain Pike stuck in that chair, unable to move, could only flash once for yes, flash twice for no. But when he went to that psychic alien world, he was able to have his body again and have his slave girl again. So I think even back then... Yeah, imagine if you're unable to do basic things and yet you can jack in and live that life. That is something really great there. And I do think they should have pushed this a little further. And that actress, I didn't recognize her by name. I didn't recognize her by face. But Olivia Cook, I know her from... Bates Motel. Yeah, where she also played a person with a physical impairment. I think that's just her niche. Yep. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I really, I don't have any problem with them not delving too much into what you can be in the Oasis and what you can overcome. Like, I'm not expecting that from this movie, I guess is what I'm saying. I wasn't shocked to find that it was an attractive female that actually was in the Oasis as Artemis. I can see them going down other roads and stuff like that, but this movie hasn't been running up to that at all. So, to have it be... This kind of easy answer, I'm fine with it at this point.
2: But it's a fantasy. That's my point, is that Spielberg is going to continue to make popcorn fantasy. He's not, to me, someone that's thinking of cutting-edge science fiction ideas.
3: And this is a dense movie with a lot in it. Truthfully, I feel like it could have been trimmed in certain ways. Like, characters could have been combined. If you weren't trying to be so close to the novel, I feel like Sorrento and... Dido and Sho kind of get the short shrift here. We don't need to have a half an hour of self-contemplation about overcoming something, but she does act like she's Eric Stoltz in Mask when in fact she's got a very minor Thing.
2: You do point out something that's true. They don't need to have five gunters in this. It's only because they're the high five and the character himself is always trying to get a high five and no one will give him one. It's just a dumb joke. And I just want to say Ernest Cline and I do not share the same sense of humor. There are all kinds of stupid visual puns in Ready Player One, like the fact that he goes through the D&D module, and he has to joust the evil knight at the end. That means picking up an Atari 2600 and playing the game joust. Uh, You know, well, all right, Arnie's laughing. Maybe I'm wrong on this. But I just, to me, there's a lot of groaning humor here. You don't need to have the high five joke. You could do better by having less characters. And trimming, sure, but I'd hate to lose the shiny. This is not in the book, but it is my favorite part of the movie because I do love that Kubrick movie so much.
3: And thank God we did the Stephen King deep dive or I would have missed so many more subtle references. I don't know that every single person who loves The Shining would remember the name of the hotel. I did, so when they go to the Overlook Theater, and the fact that they figure out it's The Shining, because what movie would they watch on the date? The Fly? Uh, it's good, but not a date movie. I don't know that The Shining's a great date movie. Right. But it is about a creator that hates his creation. Stephen King does hate that Kubrick film. <laughs> and love the Stephen Webber version. <laughs> <laughs> I know, why don't they go into that? That would be really scary. Since Jack Nicholson... Obviously couldn't come back and play Jack Torrance. I would have laughed my ass off if it was Steven Weber carrying that act. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Spielberg has a history with Kubrick. He shot Raiders of the Lost Ark on the set right next to The Shining. He was actually gotten to trouble. Kubrick did some awful things to him because he wanted him out of the property. Their friendship survived, but I think it's a little bit like Ogden and this Halliday guy. So again, I feel like that Spielberg, throughout this movie, some of these references are for him. They're not in that book. They're him going through his life and his moments and him remembering his friend Kubrick here. And, yeah, having all this great stuff that I do think everyone, you know, knows The Shining enough to know about the elevator full of blood, the twin girls, the woman in
3: room 237. Sure, the pattern in the carpet. Yeah, but the fact that it was room
0: 237, I wouldn't have remembered otherwise. Oh, you know what? The second I saw 237 on the door, I'm like, how are they going to do this scene in a PG-13 movie? But they figured out a way to do it in in a way that wasn't overly risque. And the recreation of The
3: Shining really did feel close. I just needed a kid on a big wheel, which is also very 80s, and that they had the same music that they brought back. And the fact that they realized that they were there because they'd replaced Jack Nicholson in the Overlook staff photo with Halliday and Karen. Yeah.
2: I mean, again, want to point out Warner Brothers made The Shining so they could get it. But Spielberg, again, also being friends with Kubrick, I think he could have contacted the estate, made this happen. It's The Shining for a very specific reason for Halliday and for a very specific reason for Spielberg as well. And it's just, it's a
0: lovely moment. It's also a great choice for a movie like this that is so tied down in the minutiae of trivial knowledge. I mean, The Shining itself is just that. There's people who have dedicated their lives to pulling out the minutiae and trivia from that movie. So Mm -hmm. trying to figure
2: out subtext and themes that aren't there. There's that documentary, Room 237, where people have crazy ideas about what's really going on. You're right. It's it's a movie for obsessives. It's a world that, frankly, I would go to if the Oasis existed. I definitely would have gone and experienced
0: that. The scenery here is just jaw-dropping because so far we've been flipping back and forth between the real world, which, as you can tell, is film- And into the 3D digital world, which is cleaner, brighter, shinier. And now we're in the 3D world, in a film. So we're getting even another layer of visual contrast here, which to me was amazing. It was so much fun to be back in the Stanley Hotel with a different angle on it.
2: Agreed. And then it mixes metaphors. They get to the gold room, and we find out it's actually a restaging of the first game that Halliday ever made, with zombies. So they're like, well, this wasn't in a Kubrick film, but it's where Holiday is modifying things to talk about the creation that I guess he hated. So there's this game that you take the leap. It's kind of like the zero gravity dance floor at the Distracted Globe. If you take the leap before the timer runs out, you can get
3: to Karen and get the next key. It's Artemis who does it. And my favorite moment at IOI in the whole movie is where the Sixers are trying to do the same thing and they're in the Shining House. And you're in the real world and you just see them screaming and their pods go red as one after another. They're (laughs) killed. Yeah. Not
2: everyone can stomach it. And uh, I guess that's, again, they want to show why... Beyond just the ethics of it, the Sixers are lagging behind. But then the movie makes a jump. Because they have so many numbers, they're able to solve the third clue first. And suddenly we're in Act 3, where they have the, I think it's called a fortress-tragic Under the bubble, they break out that orb and put the force field around it, and now they're the only ones that can play the final challenge, which is an Atari 2600 module. You just have to pick the right game and beat it,
0: and you'll get the final key. Now, not that I really needed it, because, I mean, I feel like we've spent quite a bit of time talking about and actually getting to these puzzles and stuff, but I do feel like I missed how ioi got to that third clue before everybody else i heard them
3: say that they knew it was in a fortress the clue from part two pointed them towards a fortress and they didn't know which fortress and so they just brute forced it they had so many people they went to literally every fortress and found it was in this one
2: That's exactly right. It's where corporate numbers excel. If you're on your own, you'd never be able to cover the ground that a corporation can. And so, yes, I agree. It's really rushed through. And I'm going to just say I feel like the rest of the movie kind of feels rushed from this point on. Up to this point, I think the movie is a really solid reimagining of the novel. And then I think things get sloppy here as we try to get to a finish line.
3: Yeah, and... I don't want the movie to be longer to figure it out more, but it does feel like this third quest, this big battle. Spielberg got lost in the spectacle. It became this moment of, in the real world, they capture Samantha. They bought her debt, so she'd run up some credit cards.
2: Her family, her father, she mentioned the whole reason why she's a resistance fighter against IOI is that it ruined him.
3: Yeah, and she has $27,000 in debt. They've bought the debt, and they have a great scam going. And it's what happened to her father is you come and you work for them in a loyalty center, but they're going to... charge you for processing. And they're going to keep charging you interest. And they're going to charge you rent even though you're a prisoner who's not allowed to leave your little cell. And so you're there forever. You are never getting out of debt because much like Chase Bank, they're going to charge you 30% interest and you're never going to be able to work it off.
0: Yeah, very much a modern commentary on debtor's prison and how that's kind of what is happening today. It's set against this kind of fantasy world, but it's, it's a very much real world problem.
2: But I do feel like it's a lot of moving around with lesser excitement. I feel like I'm being told a lot without feeling a whole lot as we see yeah, basically there are various scenarios that challenge the idea of being in the real world and being in the Oasis. One of the better ideas that I don't think is used to its potential is that Z and Dido wear skins of their real selves and then kidnap Sorrento in the Oasis so that he thinks he's out of it but in fact He's still inside the VR. It just looks like his office because H has created a fake version of it. It's, It's great. You see this kind of stuff all the time in an Oceans movie.
3: But it's just a way of getting Samantha the codes to get her out and then they forget about it. I figured that out because they had guns all of a sudden. And they were acting like they were in the Matrix the way they held the guns. I'm like... Okay, we're not supposed to realize, but we do, and they do it because Sorrento is such a douchebag. He literally keeps his password on a post-it note, and to drive it home, his password is bossman69.
0: <laughs> it's just the combination of him being an older dude who needs his password on a post-it note oh, right yeah. next to his device. <laughs> that
2: did feel like a, i mean, having worked in Hollywood, I do know the most powerful people do not know how to turn on a light. They really need their assistant.
3: But... For the first one being this elaborate race, which was an okay challenge, it's not great. The second one being the best challenge, being The Shining, which it's going to depend how much you like The Shining, how much you enjoy that challenge, but it's really detailed and creative in fiction on the part of Halliday, I thought. It showed Halliday spent a lot of work at it, that the third challenge Is somewhere in this doom world where people go to shoot each other and take their coins that... There's fortresses, and in the middle of one is just an Atari 2600 on ice, and if you play a game for 60 seconds and it's the wrong one, you fall into the ice. Halliday was really rushing. Was he terminal, and he was like given one more week to live, and this was the best he could do for challenge three? <laughs> two things. One, they've rearranged the order. A
2: version of this is the first challenge in the book. All these challenges are different than the book. And two, I like the idea that it gets back to the very first Easter egg. If you want to get the Easter egg, the very first Easter egg in any game ever was adventure. I never knew this. I loved adventure. I played it quite often. I didn't know you could go to a secret dark room and get an invisible dot and see the creator's name in some other area.
3: I did know that because I was doing a lot of game history research back when I was trying to be a game designer. I was steeping myself I didn't remember the creator's name, I didn't remember how you got it, but I did remember Adventure was first of all the first game where you had a representation of a human you were running around as, it was a 70s Atari game, and second, yep, the world's first known easter egg.
2: Yeah, I think that's why it's important, why that should be the climax. There's something anticlimactic, really, about playing an Atari 2600 after all of this spectacle, and particularly the spectacle that's going on outside the force field. All those guys can come there and rush and scream, but they're not getting in unless Samantha, as Artemis, gets that spell and breaks it down. So it's cool that he calls everyone to the Doom Planet, but they would just be sitting there looking foolish were it not for this one woman who does risk her actual life by staying in the headquarters of IOI and deciding that it's worth the risk to, when he's not looking, get in Sorrento's chair and dig through Nancy Drew books and find the actual password.
3: And I liked how he was using a virtual reality in the real world, because in this detention center, Samantha can't see. She's got this helmet on, if you try to take it off, in the virtual reality world, somebody shocks you, which activates a real shock collar on your ankle. And so Parzival Wade has to walk her through the steps to hit this button and pull down this latch to go on a 10 minute break because slaves get 10 minute bathroom breaks too.
2: More about that though, because that was a real, once we cut to the real world and we see that people are walking around with VR headsets and like walking down a sidewalk where there are cars in the street, I'm like, this can't work. There's (laughs) there's no way you can't see. (laughs) They do it sometimes when shots You can kind of see what's going on, but you don't want to. You want to pay attention to the Oasis. It's almost like a mental trick. Reality is always in your peripheral, but if you submit to the fantasy, it will subsume you and you won't notice what's going on around you. It's kind of like how people drive and text, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, very good analogy. And I wondered, you know, there was a few shots where they zoomed into Percival or Wade's face and you could see one eye through the glasses. And I wondered how much of that was what you just described or how much of that was just because it was a cool shot to see his eye rather than the blackness of a lens.
3: Yeah, I I thought the same. It's hard to believe they can actually see through the visors, but yet the visors are transparent.
2: Yeah, it's probably something they'll explore in supplemental material. There might be the technology of Ready Player One book lying around somewhere. I
3: just feel glad that Parzival has that four-way treadmill because we know from experience, Stuart, playing Doom VR, you're in that world. You cannot see and. I've moved around because you got to turn and, like, you get the cord wrapped around you. Mm -hmm. And I'm really scared of, like, falling over the beanbag chair or something. And I've stepped forward and felt stuff hit my shin. I'm like, oh, shit, I'm too close.
2: Yeah, it's very similar to that in that I knew the furniture was there and yet I couldn't quite see it. And, uh, yeah, you can get lost playing the game. And somehow people have adapted. They can still walk their dog and go to Starbucks. I just would never leave my house. Or my car or whatever trailer I'm living in if I'm wearing VR.
3: I think something that's really underserved in this entire movie is the fact that the Oasis isn't just shooting in games. What we see is mostly shooting because that's visually exciting. But in that opening, there's a casino planet with a no-tell motel and there's tennis planets, golf planets. You could go for recreation. So they could be walking down the street, but what they're doing in VR could be something very simple. They could just be having a conversation with somebody at a table where they could not have to close their vision the way you do if you're in this intense race or climbing Mount Everest.
2: That's one of the things that I, I stick on with this is the idea that if we have virtual reality, all we're going to do is extreme sports. Uh, no, I think that in many cases, people can just pick up on deficits they have and change it so that it, they're functional
3: in ways they're not. All we're going to do is cyber sex. That's it. Let's face it. It's cyber
0: sex all the time. Non-stop cyber sex. Yeah. No, that mundane stuff exists now. There is just VR chat where you're walking around a town center and you just walk up to groups of people who are actually there and you just start chatting. Yeah.
2: His view of this technology is I think limited in scope. As dense as this movie is, there's a lot here. I'm not sure how he could expand upon it in the time that he's been given, but I do feel like Spielberg is very much an old man filmmaker Making this movie, but still a very talented technician who stages a spectacle for sure here in the climax. Once she takes down the force field and we get IOI robots versus uh, what? Who who, who wasn't there? Chucky's there, Batgirl's there.
3: Chucky is my favorite favorite moment in the entire movie because they're <laughs> running around and we've seen Jason, we've seen Freddy, but they're driving around in a van. And if you want to go 80s references or early 90s, it was reminding me of the end of Pump Up the Volume where Christian Slater and Samantha Mathis are in the back of a van and they're being triangulated by the FCC mm-hmm. and they have to keep moving. That was kind of what I was thinking of. Is they're in the back of this mail truck and we go into the back of the mail truck and we see H say to Barzival, here, try this. And we don't know what's tossed. And then immediately in 3D, Chucky is stabbing at you. (laughs) And I'm like, this movie is a now playing listeners wet dream too. Because every freaking reference we have covered the movies of. It certainly helps to know it all. I mean, I think you're
2: rewarded for knowing pop culture of the last 30, 40 years. It will make this movie more sensational.
3: Yeah, so the Chucky bit, I think that was when I laughed the hardest. It was the most unexpected to see Chucky there as a weapon. It's not a character. It's not a skin. It's literally you can buy a Chucky and then throw it at people and he starts
0: stabbing them. (laughs) Weaponized Chucky for sure, yeah. (laughs) And the
3: movie PG-13, it uses its one F-bomb here too when the IOI guy goes, it's fucking Chucky.
2: (laughs) I was a little surprised we got Iron Giant. That seemed obscure to me. So much so that after the movie the first time I went and watched
3: this film. I'm like, is this a thing? You should have told me because I did the exact same thing. I watched it before Ready Player One. I knew Iron Giant was in it and I'd never seen Iron Giant. It got bad reviews when it came out. It's become a beloved classic, a film that would make men cry. I did well up a little at the end. I thought it was very good. And I do think it's a little disingenuous to have a war fighting Iron Giant in this movie when the entire thing was the Iron Giant. I am not gone. Yeah, it's Warner Brothers property is what it is. It
2: could have been a lot of things. In the book, Iron Giant is mentioned, but is in no way part of
0: this climactic whack-off is what I would call it in the book. It's a very 90s kids thing, though. Both of my kids, who are 10 years apart, know who the Iron Giant is, and it was no problem for them to go along with that choice.
2: I guess I get it, why he would be a character here. He belongs, he can be a badass here in the climax. Godzilla, legendary pictures, which at the time this thing started, was under Warner Brothers, has since been siphoned off. I'm not sure who owns Godzilla now, but they could get Mecha Godzilla, and that meant Sorrento had a skin to get in to be as big as Iron Giant. Bigger, really. And we get a
3: Gundam, too. I didn't expect a Gundam, but.
2: Yeah, that was Ultraman in the novel,
0: and I think what I heard was that they couldn't get the rights. So ah. what is this guy? I've seen him before. Gundam is just, it's another Japanese property in that ilk of almost Transformer type of thing, but it's more ninja-like. Unless you're a huge fan of Ultraman, a Gundam is going to work just as well visually on screen.
2: Yeah, you get it. Japanese animation and Dido is Japanese and he's celebrating his culture. You may have missed the fact, I didn't catch it till the second viewing, that in the opening he was established getting this artifact. It's an artifact that allows you to be a robot for two minutes. That's why he is most of the time just a samurai and only for these two minutes a giant
3: Gundam. Yeah, I caught that second viewing. Is I saw the glove again because I thought on my second viewing, man, they spend a lot of time discussing artifacts and they never really go for artifacts. They're always going for keys. You, again, When I my second viewing, I'm looking at stuff you could cut. I really am. Mm-hmm. I feel it's too long. I feel there's too much of an exposition dump at the beginning. So I'm looking at what could they have cut out. And I felt like they could have possibly cut out the artifact thing with the exception of the glove. But, I mean, I would have just gone along. You're in a video game world. Here's an orb. Here's a glove.
2: Yeah, but Spielberg is a storyteller. He sets things up in Act 1. They pay off in Act 3. That's the rules. He's a rule follower, and I appreciate that he's applying his old man sensibility in this hip techno-speak the kids are doing. It is very much like watching someone too old for this. Try it on. And not doing badly, but I agree. I am tired by this point. I feel like the story is struggling to be coherent, frankly, as it's going through. And a lot of this is flash of noise that isn't exciting. What is important, I suppose, is that Artemis is now playing with a birthmark on her character's face. She is accepting of her limitations, I guess. It feels... Facile. It doesn't feel earned, but at least is telling us, as much of this ending is, that characters have changed, they've grown, and you don't get that in the book.
3: Yeah, but she's always had, and most people in this virtual reality world have had tattoos all over, markings of some sort. So she made it just part of her pink splatter. So it's still much cooler. No offense, I mean, to the birthmark, but she styled it up.
2: Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. No one is ugly here. That is the bottom line. That's kind of what I'm getting at here. Everything is still a fantasy, even when we get into the real world. And yeah, we have Sorrento going above and beyond now. Now that he knows that Samantha has escaped and is out on the street, he's going to go get in a car, get in a gun. Finale's also going to be in a car
3: and they're going to try and track down the real people and kill them. And I like that there's that stakes, that they're in this thing, and somebody's going after their real bodies.
2: You gotta do it. Otherwise, this wouldn't mean anything. It's not the same stakes to watch people play video games. You have to have life and death stakes in a movie like this.
3: But you are going for the keys. The stakes are control of the oasis. That is a real world stake no matter what. You're going to have real world money and you're going to have real world power if you do it. But I like the fact that they went after the bodies to add that life or death stake. But I agree with a line that's parsifal says in this movie is wow you went from somewhat reasonable to crazy maniacal villain really quick because sorrento is just cartoonish he's the fakest thing in this movie that the ceo of a company is going to bet his entire company's future on winning a game and then personally pick up a gun and jump in a truck and go to try to kill a teenager
2: here's the one premise That when you apply logic just destroys this movie. Someone would have created something other than the Oasis by this point. Just look in trends. I mean, MySpace used to be a thing. And then we moved on. And now it's Instagram. And there's always something beyond. The Oasis won't be the Oasis forever. The next person you can inherit this kingdom and it won't matter because the
3: next person is going to invent something even grander by that same token here it is 2018 and i just bought another computer with microsoft windows on it and i view the oasis as an operating system and you're kind of locked in you bought the hardware you have the gloves you have the bodysuit, you have everything else people could probably try but once you've spent thousands on equipment you're not going to jump ship quite so quickly
2: Well, the point is the founder's influence remains. Even though it goes into new hands and puts on new skins, what was set up by Halliday is going to influence that future that he's not going to be a part of. And so we get to this climax where, yeah, Sorrento has tried to do everything, include pull out the catalyst, this thing we saw teased at the VR store that basically kills every avatar on a planet. Everyone is on this planet, so everyone is kicked out of the Oasis, except for Percival, because...
3: Parzival! It's a Z! Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, he got a extra life. This was kind of... Ripping know, off Scott Pilgrim? It's clumsy, but we will find out that every time he visited those archives, that guy that looked like Ass Jeeves, I thought it was just Ass Jeeves, <laughs> the curator, was actually Ogden. Morrow. That's how he spends his free time after being kicked out of the company is just to be in the Oasis seeing how people are doing with the contest. And he thought he knew everything about his partner that he founded and bet an extra life on it gave that token to this kid, and now he can go and get the Easter egg in the adventure game and in real life. Again, the movie's too long. Do they have to do this scene where he's offered the fake contract? Yeah, they could have cut
3: that scene easily. And I kind of get it in that... There is a contract written that got Ogden out, but I never felt like Halliday pushed Ogden out, which is kind of what was implied at the beginning. It was just a purity test.
2: That is lost. I agree. If, in fact, we are told that Ogden is his rosebud, another reference going all the way back to Citizen Kane, the one thing in his life that, by doing, made him sad and alone and unable to appreciate all the wealth he amassed, if it's really ultimately life
3: is about friendship, we should have understood this friendship a whole lot more. Yeah, not again that there's time for it and i did wonder spielberg isn't the type to do this but so many books have been broken up into multiple movies is this a book that would have been served better and the characters served better if we'd done a part one and a part two? Because the good guys were lawful good and all of the bad guys were chaotic evil and that there wasn't depth of character. I felt like everybody is as flat as an avatar in their motivations. And yes, while we do see an arc happen here where Wade is forced to get a little bit out of his shell and interact with the real world and finally kiss a girl that Halliday never did. We're told Halliday's biggest regret wasn't Karen, but the loss of his friend Ogden because he was too involved in that virtual world and wouldn't put limits on it. You know what? It checks off things, is what I feel. It's a completely serviceable story, but on the second viewing, I realized absolutely no character and nothing about the story was anything other than
0: stock. It was merely the dressing it wore that made this unique. I think the problem with that is inherent with the overall message, which is... We're not really sure what it is. You know, it's this oasis is a great land, but don't spend too much time in it. But at the same time, remember, it's a great place to be. Right. It's not fully dismissing the oasis and it's not fully saying go for it. So it's a muddled message from the beginning. And it's hard to really pinpoint where they're trying to land you on it.
2: Thursdays are for kissing. That's what we're, we're to be left with. We're going to close shop Tuesdays and Thursdays so you can go take your girl on a real date.
3: Thursdays are for kissing and Tuesdays are for tacos, I guess. But
0: sure. <laughs> Don't mix those up.
3: <laughs> Don't kiss your taco. Or do. Yeah. But I'm glad the message of this movie isn't, damn kids, go play outside. We're unplugging the Oasis. I'm glad that it's acknowledging that technology does come with benefits. The fact that we've been able to connect with so many of our listeners through this virtual internet is one of the greatest things of my life. I feel we have friends and that I enjoy the conversations we have with the listeners. I'm glad this movie isn't technophobic, but trying to split the difference does, like so many things in this movie, feel hypocritical.
2: Yeah, Spielberg knows that this is the future, that films will go away. I think that this is his movie to process that and he's trying to instill all of his knowledge from his films uh, sometimes quite literally in this movie so justin
0: stewart do you recommend ready player one justin i didn't read this book and i didn't pay a lot of attention to the trailers so i had very little expectations going into this movie other than hey let's see what spielberg's up to nowadays in a more fun way movie setting. Because in the past, you know, he's been getting into the more serious stuff. And I wanted to see how Spielberg would take on material, kind of self-referencing his heyday as a filmmaker. So that's what brought me into this movie and gave me something to grasp onto. And I think it delivers on that level. On that level... I'm having a great time with all the references. So many layered references that things that I think you could watch this movie 50 times and still be catching things in the background just that are all over the place. And I think there's things in there for almost every generation. I went, like I said, with my family and I've got a 13-year-old and a 23-year-old. They were each catching different things that were aimed more at their age group. I was catching things that were aimed at our age group. So there's a lot of fun stuff in there. But what I really did like is that if you're gonna be referential you can go too far sometimes family guy is one of those things where it's like okay you roll your eyes it's like we get it you you saw something 20 years ago and now everybody knows about it references references yay this is walking a fine line and i think for the most part they do a good job without it being fan servicey Referencing, it's fun. It's built into the bread here, and it's not overdone as far as I'm concerned. I think the movie's a little long, like you said, and I don't know how much rewatchability it has. I think it'll be fun to pick things out, but as far as the story goes, it's a little bare and it's a little rote. And at the end of the day, I'm not quite sure what lesson we're supposed to take away. But then I start and I think about Back to the Future. That movie's still fun. What lesson was I supposed to pull from that? Don't screw your mom. Right, exactly. And if that's the lesson at the end of Ready Player One, I'm happy with it. This movie was fun, and I can see myself watching it again, overlooking some of the smaller things. But I'm giving this one a real solid green arrow. I I like this movie quite a bit. Stuart.
2: Yeah, anytime a filmmaker that I admired in my youth is putting something out you do you cross your fingers you're like i hope they don't embarrass themselves i hope they still got some of it i know they're not the filmmakers they used to be but i want spielberg to still be able to channel ad spielberg if that's what the project requires and i'm happy to say that yes when you look at it in that way i do think that there's a lot of fun to be had in this movie and i think he has wisely parsed out source material that was very problematic and found a spine that he could relate to and connect with. And yeah, it's a Spielberg movie. By watching this experience, it's not a dramatization of Ernest Klein's novel. It's a Spielberg movie, a cautionary tale, kind of light on ideas. It's busy. It's very dense. I agree you can see it multiple times and see different little Easter eggs, but essentially I look at this as Spielberg as a lifeguard at the YMCA yelling at people for horsing around on the high dive and not needing to take an hour before they swim again. You know, he's just kind of curmudgeonly here about like, this VR, I'm uncomfortable with it and take it slow. It's not even a bad message. I don't even disagree with it, but it feels doddering, and I might appreciate a movie that might be a little bit more forward-thinking. Consequently, I don't think this movie will age well. I think we will look back at this film and kind of laugh at what he was saying and feel like, well, that was a different generation looking at the future and saying, I'm scared. But... Who knows? You know, that's the future. We never know what it will be until we get there. For the present, this is a highly entertaining Spielberg movie that recaptures some of his old magic. And while it, I don't know that I'm going to be thinking about it much beyond the entertainment value at the time, I think it's a solid recommend.
3: I strongly recommend you see this movie once. The first time I went, I had a big smile on my face for 75% of it, and it's because of the references. What can I say? Sometimes I like an episode of Family Guy. I know it's hated on for its randomness, but that's sometimes I find it funny. And here, when King Kong showed up, when the 66 Batmobile got pushed off a cliff, when... Harley Quinn is told to get out of the nightclub. When I see the bartenders in Devo hats, I'm smiling. It's making me really feel good. And I'm laughing at the really unexpected ones like Chucky. I just watched this movie and I walked out with a big grin on my face. The music, the references, it felt awesome. Then I went back the next day and I went back because A, I forgot my notepad the first time, and B, I wanted to try to catch more of the references and write some of them down. He-Man, Master of the Universe, so much is in here. But the thing about the references in this movie that I really caught the second time, but I knew the first time, they're really strong at the beginning as we're being introduced to the Oasis. And then there's a few when we go to the club, and then they kind of die down. You're focusing. Almost exclusively on our clan, who refuses to clan up, and the bad guys. And they're just dressed as themselves. None of them are licensed characters. They're all unique. And when we get to the big battle at the end, yeah, Hello Kitty and some other people show up. And I'm writing notes of what's happening on the screen. And when When Samantha gets let out of her cell... I'm writing down. Samantha breaks out of her cell. She's allowed to go on a 10-minute break to use the bathroom and make some phone calls. And I'm like, wait, make some phone calls? I fell asleep and started writing a dream. I literally, my hand was still moving on the pen, and I fell asleep in the theater and was jotting down my dream. You are now writing your
2: own movie. This happens anytime time I watch any movie after midnight. <laughs>
3: And so I had to go home and reflect. I wasn't overly sleepy. I hadn't had a late night the night before. Why did I fall asleep? Because the story's damn boring itself. The characters introduced in this movie do nothing for me. It's all the references. And so when I watched it the second time, I realized... Yeah, this movie's not going to hold up, and I don't even know if people not of Generation X will find the enjoyment in it that we do, because, again, no pop culture was created after 1999, and they barely go outside of the 80s. I still recommend the film. I still think it's fun and very well made, visually appealing. Spielberg does still have it, but it's not a Spielberg great. It's not going to go down in the annals of Spielberg history. When he dies and they put out the Spielberg partial set, not the full set you know they're gonna put out the 80 disc every Spielberg movie but they're gonna put out the one that's like Schindler's List Raiders of the Lost Ark Jurassic Park this ain't gonna be in it so it's a middle of the road recommend
2: yeah and I think you're right to zero in on the problem is the second half and the fact that we're told a lot But we never feel for these characters. These characters don't move us. Think We think about their circumstance. We don't think about their heart, the romance. All of that stuff is lost. And we've seen it all before. I mean, this is an old man trying to catch up with... You know, The Matrix is 20 years old at this point. Avatar, Inception, nearly 10 years old. And these movies are all better than this film. They all were much more forward-thinking than where Spielberg is. He's just... He's an old man. He's going at his own pace... It's kind of sweet, but (laughs) yeah, it's certainly not groundbreaking science fiction, and after the first half of the movie, it's not even
3: particularly compelling here. And I feel like so much with tech, this movie's already out of date. VR was a big thing three years ago. Now, if you want to look at the dangers, let's talk AI. Cameron had it more on the money in 1984
0: with Skynet than Spielberg has it here. Sure. Both of you guys have brought up, you know, how well this may age and may not age. And I keep going back to Back to the Future Because that's a movie where you feel like that's so 1985 and it's taking a look at 1955, pulling in the nostalgia of the generations before us. And that movie still rings with not only us today, but younger audiences. I mean, like it or not, that's still a movie in the pop culture zeitgeist. So I could see this movie, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, having a nostalgic feel for this time now.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's a good reference point to where we're at now. But as it weren't to the future, the movie I go back in time, the one that it makes me most think of is Logan's Run. I don't know if people even know that film, but it was a movie that dared to warn us that if we get trapped in the disco, we're just going to be trapped in a perpetual <laughs> disco. And it's just going to be a nightmare because we're letting the real world fall into ruin. And every old person feels that way. I can feel myself now that I'm entering middle age having these thoughts. I don't think it's wrong to question embracing a VR, but I also think that the new generation will say thanks no thanks for all of these warning labels he's sticking on here
3: but I'm going to issue a warning label for our next movie because we're coming back to review the rock in doom
2: yeah we're going to the doom planet but it ain't going to look like this (laughs) (laughs) Next week, we get back, I think, properly into the arcade. This is sort of a quasi-now-playing-arcade entry. But we will, in preparation for Rampage, we're going back to the 1993 video game Doom and the 2005 movie adaptation. All right, I haven't seen it yet, but I've never heard anything good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's not a video game that was screaming for a movie, I'll tell you that. I'll say this. I got an email from Netflix recently.
3: It says, you know, it's our anniversary. And the first movie ever rented from Netflix by anyone was Beetlejuice. I thought that was kind of cool. We just had Beetlejuice's 30th anniversary. We're going to be reviewing it very soon for our patrons. He was in this movie briefly. Yep. Warner Brothers character. And then it said the first movie I rented, it was Doom. (laughs) I had an entire history of movies at my fingertips. My very first pick. I wanna see Doom (laughs) Mm. Yeah, it's
2: not unlike Ernest Klein. Looking at all of human civilization. I'm gonna just
3: go to this eighties junk and talk about Yar's revenge. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So did I make a good choice with my very first Netflix pick ever? No. But we'll talk about it more next week. And because I feel there's going to be a lot of listeners returning to us this week, because this movie is probably the biggest movie since Black Panther, I would like to remind listeners about our spring schedule that's coming up. We are reviewing many movies that are better than Doom.
2: Yes, uh, we will continue this now playing arcade on the main feed and we will go to the theaters for things like rampage we'll also be of course doing the superhero stuff that's coming out a little film called infinity war is that what it's called like the marvel characters i think
3: i love it when we do indies you know before sunrise
2: off the beaten path
0: boyhood Mm. infinity war i just wish they'd put some marketing behind it though you know (laughs)
2: And, of course, Deadpool. There's a lot of characters there that we'll be covering. All the big summer movies, I feel like, every time I go to a movie theater and see trailers for what's coming out this summer, I'm like, yep, doing that one, doing that one, doing that one. But we're also going back in time as well, before the 80s, for our donation drive.
3: Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, we are recording right now, for release later this month, the Godfather series. That is... Our gold level, we're doing Pacino mobsters that will include all three Godfather films, and then Scarface, Carlito's Way, Donnie Brasco, and a little movie that didn't get a reference in Ready Player One, but I wouldn't have been shocked if it had, Dick Tracy.
2: Yes. Al Pacino is a really one of the acting icons at this point and uh, we will be exploring all of his catalog for gold level which is where we'll be starting the donation drive we kick it off with that Godfather series that will be starting when Avengers comes out and then we will be going through his acting catalog going between gold level which are his gangster films his bread and butter and his cop films are the platinum level things like Serpico cruising which my god
3: you've referenced cruising so often on now playing. I'm actually looking forward to it.
2: I can't even go there but we will. It's just, oh my god the fisting scene. It's incredible. Sea of Love and Heat a big movie I think everyone loves Al for where he's the cop but that's not all that we're doing. There's always a silver level and once we get closer to July and the release of the first Purge, we will be going through that entire series of Purge films, four in all plus two films that I think really inspire it the John Carpenter movie, Assault on Precinct 13, and its remake, which used a lot of the same people that made The Purge.
3: Yes, so we've got silver level, just, I'm gonna spell it out by level. Silver level is gonna be Assault on Precinct 13 and The Purge, six movies, so you're getting an extra one because we usually do five. Gold level, we're doing The Three Godfathers and four other Pacino gangster films, so now you're at a total of 13 movies.
2: It should be said, one of those movies, we don't know when it's coming out. Originally, we heard there was going to be a Scarface remake that's off the tables. Now we're hearing that he's going to be playing Jimmy Hoffa in some Netflix Scorsese movie. So whenever that comes out, that will be part of that series.
3: Okay, I'm not even counting that in my current count, but that'll be 14. I guess we'll move away from unlucky number 13. Platinum for $35 or more adds in the Pacino cop film. So you're at 17 movies, 18 if you count the Netflix thing. And then... We've got The Great White Level. (laughs) Where, no, it's not the band that burned down the club in New Jersey. It's going to be six extra podcasts from The Vault, The Four Jaws Films, and Deep Blue Sea, because Deep Blue Sea 2 is coming out.
2: Google the trailer, because I don't want people to have the wrong idea. It's coming out like Day of the Dead Bloodline is coming out. It's coming out like Hellraiser Judgment is coming out. It's a thrown out into Blu-ray and good luck finding it maybe on Redbox kind of release. But we are completists. We cover everything. And I don't think it's a bad thing in the summer movie season to go back to Spielberg's job.
3: And I am on the press releases for this they're pushing it like it's a real movie not to
2: mention that but we'll also be going back to spielberg and jurassic world the next one in that franchise is coming out we will be covering that
3: yes so that will be our jurassic level donation that gets everything i've mentioned now have you already donated for jaws back in the day when we first did it 2011, I believe, or got our DVD-ROM set, you're going to be getting Deep Blue Sea 2 already. You don't need to donate for that. If you donated for Jurassic Park back in 2015, you're going to be getting Fallen Kingdom, so you don't need to pledge again at that level. We always try to take care of our donors. You guys keep us going on the air week after week. We want to say thank you and never make you feel like you got to pay twice for the same thing. So we've always just grandfathered in everyone who's donated to us not I can't do it for the pod bean because I don't have those records but if you've donated to us during a donation drive for a series you always get the new ones as they come out but if you missed out on Jaws because it was way back when and I know we've had a lot of new listeners join us since 2011 or if you missed out on Jurassic world a few years ago here they are again from us and as always All the episodes will be available on Podbean for a reduced price during our donation drive and then kicked up in price a little bit after.
2: Yeah, a lot of content, an oasis of entertainment to explore from lots of different generations of cinema history. Looking forward to a lot of
3: those discussions. It should be a really good summer. Yeah, because Spielberg may be saying, hey kids, get outside, but we have 43 movies that we're going to review before September
0: 1st. (laughs)
2: Not gonna see the sunlight
0: <laughs> you can be like those kids walking down the street with them on <laughs> why are they still kicking
3: <laughs> sorry i have to watch the purge too <laughs> yeah to misquote this movie it's not our job to make money it's our job to make you happy and until next week now playing where the only limits are your own imagination Retrace your steps, escape your past, and the key will be yours at last.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this oasis in your day. That went well. Jack into nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast.
2: It's a place where the limits of reality are your own imagination.
1: and in the nowplayingpodcast.com archives you can find hundreds of other movie reviews including many referenced in ready player one tomb raider star wars a nightmare on elm street child's play friday the 13th the Shining, mortal Kombat, back to the future terminator the james bond films teenage mutant ninja turtles jurassic park indiana jones Batman, Gremlins, Godzilla, Star Trek, Alien, Dune, The Incredible Hulk, Robocop, Spider-Man, Superman, Suicide Squad, War of the Worlds, Street Fighter, Beetlejuice, Mad Max, Stephen King's Christine, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, The Fly. All those movies are referenced in Ready Player One, and in-depth reviews of all those series can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. A whole virtual universe. Plus, you can follow along with our video game retrospective and hear reviews of video game movies including Super Mario Bros., Resident Evil, The Wizard, Double Dragon, Tomb Raider, Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, and others. This is just interesting game. Do you want to continue? Insert money now to keep now playing's Oasis online. I'm here talking to all of you now because our future is being threatened. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to help keep Now Playing operating. Are you willing to fight? You can donate to the show and receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews. Find details at our website. Or you can send PayPal donations to donate at nowplayingpodcast.com. The world's most important economic resource... You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month, plus even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. Save the Oasis, save the world. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews for 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage.
3: It well, is a bummer but we could go somewhere without going anywhere at all.
1: You can follow and make human connections with our now playing hosts on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. This is where we meet each other. It's where we make friends. Now Playing podcast was the brainchild of Arnie Carvalho. What he left behind changed everything. Credits announced by Brock. Who, me? No, him! Oh my God, yes, you! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Welcome to the rebellion. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. This is actual life and death stuff. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Inganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the express written permission of Inganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. I'll wave to you from the finish line. (laughs) Less
3: than this movie has, I'll tell you that much. I didn't have Watto flying around in the background.
0: Pretty impressive, sis. (laughs) (laughs) connect four
3: ad i know
0: that reference (laughs) and it's pretty sneaky sis i know but it was impressive what you did (laughs) sneaky not so much but yeah impressive
3: (laughs) here's the really funny thing every year i go on a fishing trip with some friends and we drive to southern illinois there's a dare i call it mansion built out of trailers and we've seen it evolve it literally started as one trailer then they welded on another trailer then they put two trailers on top of it so it's second story i think the stacks aren't in columbus they're in southern illinois we're watching it build <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> is really cupping the 80s and stroking its ego <laughs> <laughs> the, the 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 idea of- i like a good cup and stroke yeah <laughs> the stained
3: glass Starfleet insignia and the funeral flowers made out of the Enterprise Justin take a note this is exactly how I want my funeral only make it all Star Wars I want Millennium Falcon
0: flower shapes gotcha we'll put you in that uh, little escape pod that Rey uses in the last movie oh please nothing new trilogy (laughs) try
3: not to choke on your aspirations Sorrento (laughs) oh god who did I think it was Uh, I thought it. what's her name now (laughs) The real actress that's in No, it? I know, no. Um, uh, that's
2: whoever was in your mind?
3: Yeah, yeah. I got it. I got it. I'm looking it up. Someone from My Best Friend's the Vampire. <laughs> I really thought it was Mila Kunis.
2: Isn't she the one that's in Alita Battle Angel? That very distracting Robert Rodriguez movie that's coming out soon? <laughs> Mila Kunis? I, it, again, maybe every VR character looks like Mila Kunis. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, she was in a bad mom's Christmas, but I think that's the last thing I know of her doing. No, yeah, it's she's Jackie from that '70s about. show. That thing with the scary eyes. Yeah, that's not her.
0: Okay, she's Jackie from that '70s show.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, but since then, yeah, I don't know. She, I don't yeah. know. Maybe she's just in my mind.
3: She no. Her next, the only movie she has coming out is the spy who dumped me with uh, what's her face. That's okay. Don't need to no know more. <laughs> <laughs> Again, this-, this this is totally off topic. But Marjorie and I went to Chuck E. Cheese recently for a nostalgic time. It's turned into a kitty casino. Did you know that? It always was. They don't have the games like Donkey Kong and things like when we were kids. Every single game spits out tickets. The entire oh, yeah. thing is a freaking casino, and most of them are spinning a wheel and seeing how many tickets you get. Very few are actual interactive video games. They did have like a Jurassic Park game, and the further you got, the more tickets you got. But the entire goddamn thing's a kitty casino now. That's not fun. <laughs> yeah, it's,
2: it's unethical. <laughs> oh my God, the fat the fisting scene. It's incredible.
3: Uh, <laughs> f- you almost said the fast, so I'm like, <laughs> the fast of the fisting? What? <laughs> yeah,
2: that could have been another <laughs> name for it.
3: <laughs>